In this episode, you can exploit people if you get them to buy into the idea that they have this obligation or a moral obligation. They're good moral people if they live for others. And you secretly yourself think, oh, I'm going to benefit. I'm going to be the recipient of their sacrifices. I'm going to be the beneficiary by convincing all these other people that it's good to live for others. But I myself, I really know that's, that's, uh, I don't buy into that. And I think you can, you can get people to buy into altruism by presenting the good part of it. And then if you kind of try to bring in the other part through the back door, after you've gotten the, you, they took the bait thinking, oh, altruism just means kindness and benevolence. And then after they uh, hang around you for a while, you say, oh, it also means, you know, giving, turning the other cheek and giving my money to charity and, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, he was, al- he was altruistic when he uh, sacrificed himself on the cross and gave up his entire life. And Mother Teresa, who spent her whole life in India, she was also altruistic. All right, well, whoa, that's, now it's starting to seem a little bit different than just mm-hmm. doing nice, kind little things for other people. It seems like maybe you're bringing something else in here. I mean, do, are all those things really the same belong under the same concept it seems like there's some radically different things being put together under this one concept altruism if jesus was altruistic and mother Teresa was altruistic and i'm also altruistic when i hold the door open for someone for a few seconds and it gives me satisfaction at the same time as they say well it's good to have a balance between selfishness and selflessness they also want to say well, Mother Teresa and Jesus were very unbalanced. I mean, they're kind of at the extreme end, you might think, mm-hmm. of selflessness. They, hold, they regard them as moral ideals. But there's a, then there's a contradiction there. You can't both say that it's good to have a balance in the way that you know, most Westerners do between selfishness and selflessness, and also simultaneously say, it's good to be like Mother Teresa and Jesus, and they're morally ideal. No, they're not. <laughs> they're bad. <laughs> if balance is good, and they are mm-hmm. not balanced, then they're not good. So you have to pick. Welcome to another episode of the Selfishness Project, where we explore the idea of selfishness. Today, I am here with a student who got to know about the Selfishness Project through watching, actually being a member of uh, Professor Molyneux's class at the University of California at Davis. I had a conversation with him uh, a few months ago, which Uh, Professor Molyneux decided to use in his class at UC Davis uh, in the uh, winter quarter of 2020. Uh, That's episode number 20. If you want to look for it on my my website or on my YouTube channel. And one of the students in his class was very interested in the topic of egoism. And uh, Professor Molyneux let me know about that and put me in touch with him and uh, said, hey, maybe, maybe you could have a, a uh, video chat with him. And I thought that was a great idea. 
uh, and I thought, well, maybe that could actually become another episode of the Selfishness Project, and uh, we'll see. Um, but I was very interested in having that chat, and uh, so here we are. So this is the students, and uh, let's see. Um, I guess it shows your name there on the screen. <laughs> we can blur that out later. Um, I don't know if anyone will recognize you, but so uh, so let's get into some of these topics. Uh, we had a pre-call uh, a couple of days ago. We talked about what we might discuss on this call on this uh, on this call, and um, I have some things written down here. But maybe I should just turn it over to you, and you could put it in your own words. Um, you can tell me what you're interested in discussing first. So, um, so maybe we can start with like an egoist perspective on the altruism and uh, its definition of selfishness. Okay, egoist uh, perspective on altruism mm -hmm. and its definition of selfishness. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what is the egoist perspective on altruism? Um, well, if you just put that to me as a question, I think naturally I'm inclined to think they're basically opposites and people often think of them as antonyms. So um, egoism means uh, you're living in a way that's intended to benefit yourself. Your ego, uh, if ego is just a synonym of self. Uh, and then uh, altruism is uh, you can define that as living for others, people who are not yourself. And actually, the Latin word alter means other. So if you just look at the, the, the meanings of the words, uh, altruism literally means otherism. Now, I don't think you can always uh, determine the meaning of word just by looking at the word parts and its roots. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but I think this... This maybe is a case where you, where you can do that. Uh, altruism, that's, that term I believe, I've heard that it's a, it was coined originally by Auguste Comte, a French philosopher mm. of the 19th century. And uh, I, I haven't read, I've read little if any of Comte. I've mainly heard about him secondhand through other people. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think, his view was basically that you should live for other people. And I don't know if you use the term sacrifice or the French equivalent. Uh, you sacrifice yourself for the sake of others or for the sake of humanity. Um, so that's, that's one way you might understand altruism. Now, I think the way it's often understood and maybe even defined in some English dictionaries, if you look up altruism, it, may, it might say something like uh, compassion for others or benevolence or kindness towards others, which one might think is not exactly the same as sacrifice, um, self-sacrifice or living for the sake of others. I mean, can't you be kind to others without living for their sake? I mean, you might think that it's in your own interest. It's egoistic. To be kind to others because then they'll be they're more more likely anyways to be more kind back to you um so 
or if you're benevolent, uh, if you're benevolent towards others, they will more likely be benevolent towards you. So you benefit. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure it's, it's really correct or helpful to think of altruism, at least if you're going to understand it as the opposite of egoism, to think of it as simply being kind or nice or benevolent, because I think there's room to, for an egoist to be kind, nice, and benevolent. So if you want to understand altruism in a way that makes it opposite of egoism, I think you have to come up with some other way to understand it as, for instance, sacrificing yourself, living for the, entirely for the sake of others. And we could talk more about uh, whether that's the right way to understand that or what exactly it means to sacrifice yourself to others. In fact, but, go ahead. Yeah, in fact, I totally agree with altruism being a feature of egoism. But, my, mm -hmm. but the question I have, I have is that, so there can be two ways for altruism to be generated. It's either first, as we almost always understand, is that altruism can bring ourselves a great sense of honor. And it, it makes us feel proud of ourselves and have that sense of agreement on ourselves our recognition of ourselves, great parts, our advantage. And by sacrificing some parts of ourselves, we do feel joy or pleasure in that sense. But on the other hand, is it possible that altruism is, is also generated from a necessity in culture that people require or need somebody to sacrifice themselves for the majority, like in the village? In the past, people need to have a hero who sacrificed himself and fight himself to death with a beast in order to protect them. And it was under this situation that people begin to boast the necessity or the necessity and requirement of altruism and make people gradually to believe that altruism is an honor and it's something we should feel joyful and pleasure in committing such a, uh, in committing of. So, do you think maybe that's the case, or is that a like contorted interpretation of egoist altruism? Okay, so uh, you you are suggesting that uh, altruism could be a feature of egoism. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's it could actually be in your own interest to be altruistic. And it, was that the basic idea? Or maybe it's because it's in other people's interests. It's in the it's in the majority's interest, or it's in most people's interest. People think that they need a hero to save them. Therefore, they begin to boast altruism, and altruism is an effect of these people who try to benefit themselves. And those people who bought into altruism also interpret altruism as something that can bring themselves joy and pleasure. And therefore, they begin to also benefit by being altruistic. Okay, so let me see if I, I got the idea. So some people, they think they can benefit if other people are altruistic. Mm -hmm. And so 
um, I guess they, they think if other people are altruistic, then those other people will be, le will be living for or trying to benefit the people who are saying it's good to be altruistic. And so those people who are saying it's good to be altruistic, they want to benefit themselves and they think they will get that benefit by preaching altruism and getting other people to live for others and then they themselves will be part of those others who are benefiting mm -hmm. uh okay well i guess if 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 that's the idea then the people who are preaching altruism are being uh, i guess they're being egoistic by by preaching altruism but they're not uh acting altruistic themselves, even though they're preaching it. So there's, there's a tension. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess if, if I were to come across one of these people who's saying it's good to be altruistic, um, I would want to see, does his own actions match his words? Like, is he acting in a way that he claims to be good? Because if he says altruism is good, does he really mean that? Is he acting in accordance with that? Or is he only uh, saying this because he wants other people to act in a certain way, which he himself is not willing to act? If he himself is not willing to act in the way that he preaches is good to act, then I would wonder, you know, does this guy really believe altruism is, is a good thing? Or is he just using it to exploit other people? Uh, which I think might actually have happened uh, historically. Um, people, I think maybe, uh, certain religious leaders have realized that altruism, you can get people to do your bidding. Uh, you can exploit people if you get them to buy into the idea that they have this obligation or a, a moral obligation. They're good moral people if they live for others. And you secretly yourself think, oh, I'm going to benefit. I'm going to be the recipient of their sacrifices. I'm going to be the beneficiary by convincing all these other people that it's good to live for others. But I myself, I really know that's, that's uh, I don't buy into that. But I'm going to convince others. So instead of um, having to force them, like use physical violence, uh, put them in chains, in order to basically make them my slaves. I mean, nobody wants to be a slave. No one will voluntarily choose to be a slave to somebody else. Because mm -hmm. um, that makes it obvious that you're forcing someone to act in a way that they're not choosing to act. You, mm -hmm. That's why you have to force them. But if you can get them to believe um, that it's good to do the same thing that a slave would do, mm -hmm. but to do it voluntarily, well, then you save yourself a lot of trouble. You don't have to um, have a fight with them. You can just, uh, get, change their own mind so that they act in, in the way that you would want them to act if you did force them. Mm -hmm. So I think altruism is kind of a tool if it's used like that. And I, I suspect, uh, it has been used like that. Um, one example that might support this is I think priests would often say like, going back thousands of years, I don't know if Babylonia is a good example of this, but <laughs> these ancient Near Eastern religions, they'd say, you know, make your sacrificial offerings, bring your crops 
or at least a certain percentage of your 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 crops or your goats or whatever bring it to the temple and you know we'll make a sacrifice to the god well the priests who are preaching this they i mean they weren't the ones who did the work of raising the goats or doing the farming they just sit back and tell other people you know it's they convince them you know it's this is a good thing to do you got to make your sacrificial offerings to the gods or else the gods are going to be angry and they're going to, um, you know, inflict a, a plague or something, a flood or whatever to punish. And they, they get people to buy into this. And then people, they do their, their honest toiling away to produce their crops or raise their herds. And then they, they bring their, their offerings to the temple and the priests, they, they, I guess they can, maybe they can take a cut at that point. <laughs> Uh, they can eat some of the the food. They didn't have to work for it themselves, but um, and they didn't have to fight anybody for it. They just convinced other people that it was good to do this. So, actually, the whole idea of mysticism and supernaturalism is uh, tied in here with the idea of altruism. Maybe there is no rational earthly justification for uh, giving your earnings to somebody else and letting somebody else live on you basically as a parasite you haven't done any work yourself mm-hmm. um there's no way to rationally justify that and no one would would buy that but if you can convince people i guess faith also comes into play here if you get people to throw out reason um they don't think through things rationally if you get them to take things on faith uh like there there are these gods and they demand these offerings, and if you don't bring the offerings, they will punish you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if you can get people to believe that, then you can get them to act in certain ways so that you can basically live uh, off of other people instead of having to live productively yourself. Mm. So, I mean, this is a very long answer, but I was taught as I was uh, thinking it through, more and more things were coming to mind um, that seemed relevant. So um, let me pause here and throw it back to you uh, and see what what thoughts you have at this point. So I had two things in my mind at this place. First, as in the example of these priests, at a certain point after preaching for altruism, they themselves seem to also begin to believe in the sense of altruism. They truly believe it's good. And some of them really Really begin to act in that way. And this connects to my second point, which is that then is there a seed in people's mind? Is there a region in people's mind for people to so easily accept altruism? Because as a result of our current culture, we can see that altruism is being proclaimed as the greatest honor or the best thing, best soul spirit in our culture. And people all agree with it. They might not act on altruism, but they all agree that altruism is the best. And altruism is something we should all praise for. And in that sense, I think there must be something about altruism so attractive that first, not only those people who are preached, they believe in altruism, but those preachers themselves who invented this concept also begin to agree on it. Okay, I think these are some interesting points you're raising. Um, so, uh, one thought is 
just because I, I think you 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 said something like the the priest invented altruism, and I said a while ago that Auguste Comte came up with this term altruism in the 19th century. Um, the basic idea of altruism, even if that not, even if that particular word uh, was a relatively modern invention, mm. um, the idea of sacrificing yourself or living for others that's ancient. I mean, that goes back to uh, time immemorial. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm talking about these these ancient Babylonian priests, for example. Um, so let's not be too worried about the particular word here being used, but just the idea of living for others. Um, so you said that you think that these priests, they, they might not be, they might really believe this. They're not just putting on a show and pretending that altruism, altruism is good and uh, getting other people to do their bidding. They really believe it. And this also might be true of many people in the general public. They think someone like uh, Mother Teresa, uh, who's often held up as an example of altruism and self-sacrifice, was really a good person. And they really believe this, even if they themselves don't act in this way, they still regard her as a kind of moral ideal or hero. Likewise with Jesus, who's a uh, you know, symbol of self-sacrifice. So, uh, is, so is that right? And I think you also said uh, something about, is there something like innately in humans that makes them uh, susceptible to believing this since so many people actually do seem to sincerely believe that altruism is good. Um, I'm not sure if that's exactly how you put it, but um, I wrote down the word innate as I was taking some notes. Mm -hmm. Is there something just built into us innately that makes it, makes people um, want to believe altruism is good since so many people do believe it's good. Mm -hmm. So some thoughts on all of that. Um, first, I think just as a cultural observation, I, I, I don't think it's innately built into us. Uh, and I think you can find cultures if you go back in history, uh, in particular ancient Greece, mm -hmm. that were not uh, altruistic uh, at least if they were, it wasn't to nearly the degree that uh, later Christian cultures were. Uh, altruism is often associated heavily with Christianity, though, as I said, you know, it goes back to these more ancient religions in the Near East, Babylonia, etc. The idea that self-sacrifice is good mm -hmm. or sacrifice of some kind. Um, but I think Greece is an exception to that religious trend, and Greece is also the first really secular, that is non-religious uh, culture, or at least they were much more secular. Of course, they still had their, their religion, the Greek gods, Zeus and so on. But uh, th their worldview was much more secular. The gods were, they were kind of like superhuman beings. They, didn't, they weren't um, as otherworldly or mystical. Um, they, they were kind of made in the image of humans, uh, uh, much more literally than I think like the Judeo-Christian God is where he's supposed to be um, 
all-powerful omnipotence and um omniscience the greek gods i don't think are 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 like that um they they're much more human in nature um, but they have some superpowers uh so relatively speaking i think the greek was a a much more this worldly secular culture a pro-reason culture in contrast both to the the preceding uh cultures uh like babylonian culture and egyptian culture and later cultures in the west uh, like in the middle ages which when things became more religious um so the greek culture i think was more egoistic i think they were more on board with the idea of living a good happy life uh here on this earth um as opposed to uh pining pining away for some supernatural afterlife mm -hmm. um there's some line from the odyssey homer's odyssey where uh one of the characters says it's it would be better to be the slave of a poor man on earth than a king in the underworld uh something like along those lines and i so the idea is that they really liked life on this earth um and they wanted to make the most of it aristotle famously argued that happiness or eudaimonia to use his term mm -hmm. flourishing that sometimes translated was the the ultimate good that we should be aiming at so we should uh we should be able aiming to um live uh qua human beings um maximize our potential as as human beings uh given our our nature our re our rational capacities he he's associated with uh famously with the idea that man is the rational animal mm -hmm. i don't know if you ever use exactly those words but that was his idea of what makes human beings distinctive we're the reasoning kind of animals and that's how we we live and flourish is by exercising our reason uh uh which is the opposite of living by faith where you throw out reason um and accept ideas without any evidence believe things without any proof um that was contrary to aristotle's idea now plato was was more otherworldly uh he believed in this supernatural realm of forms or otherworldly realm of forms and this this world he thought was kind of a shadowy imperfect reflection we're like in a cave to use his one of his uh analogies and um if we came out into the light and saw the sun we would realize that you know that this world that we see with our senses and that it is really uh not true reality it's just an imperfect reflection of true reality and it's not uh the good the good part of reality mm -hmm. um so plato was i guess bucking the greek trend in that way and means mm -hmm more otherworldly but if you look at the greek culture as a whole it was much more this worldly and about achieving success and happiness in this life here on earth so i think that is a counter example to the idea that altruism is built into us innately perhaps through most of history uh cultures have been altruistic and self-sacrificing but i don't think it's built in to the nature of humans uh to think that that's a good thing and there are some exceptions 
um, Greece, I think, being the, the prime example. I okay, think now, you mentioned a couple of other things, mm -hmm. but let me, before I say anything about the other things, let me throw it back to you since I've been talking for a while and see if you want to say anything at this point. Yep, so I think the reason for, although aside altruism itself is not part of the Greek culture, but I would say uh, there is another transition, which is heroism. We can see heroism in Greek culture and their literature. And we can see that they agree on this heroism a lot. They admire heroism, even in that sense, in their myths, in their culture, in their epic poems. And they also agree on this sense of tragedy within those heroism. So I think we can, and heroism itself is very much related to altruism and self-sacrifice. But I think by mentioning the Greek culture, it did bring up a good point, which is maybe the essence of heroism. It's not about benefiting other people, but it's about showing your own strength and fighting against the tragic fate, which was very much expressed in the literature at that moment. So heroism at that time, it's more, I think it's, it follows with Greek, Greek culture, which is to achieve a success in average life. But then there is also this element of self-sacrificing heroism and facing the tragic death of certain situations like that. And that is closely related to altruism. So I think Greek culture itself does have element that's related to altruism in that sense. Okay, so heroism uh, is is that is that uh, so the Greeks had their heroes. Uh, the first one that comes to my mind is um, Achilles from the Iliad. Uh, he was a um, a military hero. You could call him that. Mm -hmm. And uh, then you've got uh, Odysseus from the Odyssey, mm -hmm. whose, I guess, supreme virtue or the one that is most often associated with him is his, his cunning. His, he's very clever in the way he gets himself out of tricky situations. Um, now, are either one of those, those altruistic or self-sacrificing um, they don't strike me as being that I'm not, I mean, I've read both works. I'm not super familiar with them, but Achilles uh, famously uh, puts his own interest ahead of the interest of his, his, uh, his fellow warriors. I think he, he withdraws himself from battle sometimes when he sees, you know, that he could really help them. They're, they're being slaughtered by the Trojans. Um, and, uh, but he sits out the fight because his, his own pride has been uh, wounded. Um, so at least in some sense, it seems like, well, he's putting his own interests ahead of the interests of others. 
Now you might think, so that might seem like an egoistic thing to do. Although if you, well, you're going to say something, let me go ahead. Yeah, just, I want to make another name. How about Prometheus? I'm not sure if oh. that's a way to pronounce it. Prometheus? Prometheus, yes. <laughs> Prometheus. Yeah, he took the uh, fire from the gods and gave it mm -hmm. to human beings. Mm -hmm. Which is a altruistic and heroistic. I mean, heroic. <laughs> okay. Um, so Prometheus, I'm, I'm less familiar with him. I, I don't know much beyond what I just said. But um, he was... What, was he a demigod? Like half he, one of his mm -hmm. parents was a god and the other was a, hum, a mortal human? Yes, he's a descendant of the Titans. Oh, okay. Um, you're a history student, right? <laughs> so, I, I remember you told me that before you, you're, um, you study history as well as uh, you're taking a philosophy class. So, mm -hmm. um, okay, so yeah, was that an altruistic thing? for him to do well I, uh maybe i guess let's let's try to think it through um what was his his motive in doing it i think motive is key mm -hmm. so was he doing this thinking uh i am i am uh sacrificing my own interests i'm i'm putting other people's interests ahead of my own mm -hmm. uh, by taking this action and maybe he was i mean did he foresee that he was going to be chained to a rock and uh that an eagle or some bird was going to chew out his liver <laughs> well, that, that was part of the story right yeah i would assume he would perceive future punishment but what i thought about this is that still this is only a story and perhaps this is one of those stories made by those preachers who try to preach about heroism and altruism mm. and what i was trying to say was that the so the greek culture at that moment already had this trend to propose something similar to altruism and for people to sacrifice themselves for other people and that seems to be some it just feels like with all of this culture having these trends and there is some innate part or innate explanation for people to all make up this type of idea and for people to all agree on something like this okay well uh, let's, I mean, it, I, I'm tempted to go back to and get into the details of this example of uh, Prometheus a bit more before deciding whether this was really an altruistic act in the sense of mm. sacrificing himself. So if he thought he was taking a calculated risk mm -hmm. when he took fire from the gods and gave it to the human beings, if he didn't know for sure that he was going to end up being punished in the way he does if he thought well maybe i will but maybe i won't maybe i'll um be able to pull this off i'll, I'll be able to give give fire to human beings and uh it'll make them happy and then uh, mm -hmm. i being you know at least partly related to them will 
enjoy that fact. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like, uh, it's reminding me of someone who chooses to go in the military. There's a risk involved. They're not, at least often, it's not certain death when you fight a battle. You mm -hmm. think, well, maybe I might get <laughs> killed, but I also might not. And I realized that if I never fight, if nobody ever fights, then uh, our enemies are just going to take over and enslave us all or kill us. So it's, it's worth our risk, at least some people, um, to, to fight this battle and risk being killed themselves because they know that's the only way to secure their freedom. Um, so Patrick Henry famously said, give me liberty or give me death. Uh, so people often think, you know, it's, it's not worth living under certain conditions. They would rather be dead than live as a slave. And you might, you might have to risk your life in order to be able to live as not a slave. <clears throat> um, so just because someone takes a risk uh, that ends up not working out for them, mm -hmm. I don't think we can immediately conclude that they did something that was self-sacrificing, not good for themselves, because they might have seen the alternative mm -hmm. as even worse. Like maybe, maybe Prometheus thought, well, if I don't give fire to human beings, then um, they're always going to be cold and not be able to cook their meat and kill the bacteria. And it, of course they didn't know about bacteria, but anyways, uh, he, he, maybe he thought there was some kind of advantage being able to see at night advantages that fire would give to human beings. And it gave him pleasure or satisfaction in order to possibly, um, give those gifts to human beings. And so maybe uh, it was an egoistic kind of act. Why would he feel satisfied by helping these humans? That's a key question to convert an altruism into egoist egoistic perspective. That's we feel satisfaction from helping other people. What's the reason? What's the reason of this such a behavior or such a mental set? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, why would we get satisfaction from helping others? And I think we do sometimes uh, get satisfaction from helping others. Um, I think it, it, it contributes to a, a benevolence kind of feeling like a happy feeling about life and the world as a whole so like uh one example that comes to mind sometimes when i think about this issue is holding a door open for somebody who has his arms full so um it only takes let's say i'm right by the door and i happen to see this person coming by and he's got his hands full of boxes and it'll only take me a second to open the door for this guy and let him go through. Um, and if I didn't do that, if he had to open the door himself, it might take him a minute to like put all his belongings down and then hold the door open, maybe stick his foot in the door and then uh, 
pick up all, all the boxes again and then go through. This whole operation might take them uh, mm -hmm. a couple of minutes, uh, which I could save them just by spending a few seconds of my time. Mm -hmm. And it does give me some satisfaction to do this small act of kindness. Um, why? Well, I guess it's, it, it contributes to the kind of world I would want to live in. Mm -hmm. If I lived in a world where people didn't do these sorts of things for each other, I mean, that wouldn't be a very nice world to live in. I wouldn't want to live in a world where people aren't willing to do these small things for each other. Um, and uh, I think there might be some, there's an inconsistency uh, to think as some people might who are listening to this like well okay it makes sense that you would want other people to hold the door for you mm -hmm. but why does it make sense for you to hold the door for others i can see how you would want to benefit but mm -hmm. um <clears throat> why would you want to benefit others well i'm not sure that's that's really a consistent position to maintain it's maybe it's kind of like a it's a contract informally and not officially, obviously, mm -hmm. but just like if I find out that, um, you know, a particular individual is not willing to do some small act of kindness like this mm -hmm. for me, then I'm not going to do it for him the next time. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so I'm not doing it. I might not. Um, I guess I, I'm giving some of the benefit of the doubt that mm -hmm. they are willing to also act in this kind of way and hold the door open in a certain circumstance like this. Um, and uh, I guess if, if I have any evidence to the contrary, mm -hmm. then I, I withdraw my benevolence because um, I see, well, they're not, they're not, helping to make this nice benevolent world possible there. So, and I, you know, I don't want to um, aid in a bet that's that sort of attitude. Um, and I guess I, so, so I think there's kind of an inconsistency if, if you have the attitude, well, I'm just going to, uh, be the the beneficiary of these acts of kindness. I'm never going to perform them. I mean, I guess you can get away with that in isolated cases, mm -hmm. but you can build up a reputation uh, if you know word gets around that Dan is a is a mean guy. <laughs> he doesn't do these things. That that's going to harm my reputation. Mm -hmm. um, my, you know, people aren't going to want to be my friends, not going to want to spend time with me. I'm going to end up as a loner. Um, and that's not to my interest. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it's often the case that you can get away with something in the short run in the sense that uh, existentially, like in, out in the world, you don't suffer any consequences, although psychologically, internally, even you might, you might still suffer consequences knowing that you're living in a way that is not conducive to your long-term happiness. Um, 
so I think this is in an existentially actually um, in the world, one of the ways this could come back to bite you, at least in the long run, is once you build up this re reputation as mm -hmm. a mean guy who doesn't do kind things for others, people don't want to be around you. They don't want to be your friends. And then you end up isolated. And that's not a very satisfying way to live. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you do build up this nice reputation, then that's going to be attractive to people. They will want to be your friend. So um, this is all, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to connect this back now to um, what we were talking about earlier. We, we were talking about Prometheus and mm -hmm. how he's doing nice things for others. So, I mean, he might get a lot of satisfaction for the, um, mm -hmm. people might look up to him as a hero. You know, if he mm -hmm. pulled this off, and I guess he is seen very positively, um, I guess at least among the humans, <laughs> he got mm -hmm. a lot of love from them. I, I don't know, you can tell me, you probably, maybe you know the story better than I do, but <laughs> I mean, did he get a lot of gratitude and thanks and was he looked up to by the humans because of what he did for them? Um, I mean, people at least all praise him and appreciate his sacrifice at this point. And as the story's conclusion, we all see him as a hero. That itself is a recognition to his sacrifice. And according to the egoistic perspective, maybe he should be satisfied with the current situation. Uh, maybe. And there's, there's also a question in my mind as to whether we should call it a sacrifice. Mm. I think that's, that's a key term in this discussion what exactly is meant by a sacrifice? Sacrifice, if by definition of benefits, is to giving up some benefits in exchange of a better benefits, of greater benefits. That would be a rational sacrifice. Otherwise, it might be rational where you give out certain things and did not receive exchange anything in exchange, I'll receive too little in exchange. But the question here that is that, do you expect, did you expect to receive something greater than you sacrificed? Or did you simply just say, nah, I don't care. I would just sacrifice. I don't expect anything in exchange. Mm, okay. I, it's interesting that you mentioned rational sacrifice which is, I think, a way of drawing a distinction, which I, I would also draw, but maybe in different terms. Uh, so is it a, so here's one idea. It's a sacrifice whenever you give up something. Mm -hmm. So if I go to the store and I give up $3, I go to McDonald's, I give up $3, and in exchange, I get a cheeseburger. Now, was that a sacrifice? I was giving something up. Well, I think normally people would say, no, um, that it's weird to call that a sacrifice. Um, that was just a trade. Uh, I actually valued the thing I was getting more than the thing I gave up. That's why I gave up the $3, because I would rather have had the hamburger mm -hmm than the three dollars mm -hmm. and mcdonald's likewise would rather have had the three dollars than than the cheeseburger mm -hmm. 
so both sides were benefiting. It was a win-win transaction. Uh, and both were giving up something, but both also got something that they wanted more than the thing they gave up. Mm -hmm. So that's one kind of exchange. Now, there's also a kind of exchange which, which you mentioned where you're giving up something and getting less in return, maybe nothing mm -hmm. in return. So imagine I, I now go to McDonald's and I, I give the cashier $3 mm -hmm. and then I just walk out the door. I don't take, <laughs> I don't take a cheeseburger with me. So there I've got nothing in return. Mm -hmm. um, now you can still say, oh, well, what about psychologically? Internally, did you get some satisfaction? Did you think you were helping out the cashier, maybe giving the cashier a tip? And, um, so you actually really did get something, but it wasn't anything material or physical or external. Um, it was something psychological. So uh, it was still a trade of sorts. Um, you gave something and you got something back. At least maybe you got something. Well, I don't know if you'd say it you got it back because it's not like they gave you the satisfaction in the way that they gave you the cheeseburger before, but there was some result that welled up within you, namely the satisfaction. Um, so we might not want to call it a trade, but it still might seem like a, um, a, a benefit to yourself. And we might not want to call that a sacrifice because you would rather have had that good feeling from helping out the cashier with a tip. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a great cashier and you really, mm -hmm. you really like her. You think she does very good work and you want to show your appreciation by just giving her a $3 tip. Um, so, and I mean, that's, that is what we do when we actually tip, tip mm -hmm. at a restaurants. Uh, if we give an especially uh, large tip, it's an appreciation. Um, and it, uh, it might give us some satisfaction to uh, uh, reward the person that way. So we have to, we can't just automatically assume if we just look at the action externally without knowing what's going on psychologically, whether mm -hmm. it was a, a net benefit mm -hmm. to the person. We also have to know the inner story. But now let's, let's suppose we just stipulate mm -hmm. that the person gives away the $3 to the cashier and does not get any internal satisfaction from doing that, or at least mm -hmm. not enough to uh, uh, outweigh the $3. Um, and maybe the person doesn't even expect to um, benefit on net uh, by doing this. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's an unrealistic example. Uh, I, I'm not sure we could discuss that. But in any case, I think we want to distinguish cases where you were giving up something and getting something greater in return whether external or internal, and then giving up something and getting less than you gave up in return. 
whether external or internal. And one way to think of sacrifice is it only refers to the latter. So it's only when you give something up, thinking, intending that you will get less than you gave up, that it will be a net loss to yourself. We might want to call that a sacrifice or whatever word we use for it. We want to distinguish that from cases where you give something up and you're expecting something greater than you gave up. I think we want to clearly distinguish those two cases uh, and somehow linguistically have different terms for those. We don't want to conflate those um, in, and use the same term to refer to both every anytime when you give something up because I think cases of giving up could be radically different from each other. Mm -hmm. um, and whether we want to use sacrifice for, for one of those or not, or call one of them a rational sacrifice and the other an irrational sacrifice, we want to have some way of distinguishing between those two cases. Let me throw it back to you now. Mm -hmm. In fact, then uh, please allow me to introduce, uh, per perhaps propose another way of defining this. Instead of saying it's a sacrifice, sacrifice can only subject can only exist in an objective perspective perspective as all of our relationships that are only treatings that are only trees there are irrational trees and rational trees and when we feel satisfaction the reason for us to need satisfaction in giving up something is that we need this satisfaction as a as a compensation a recompensation of what we lost. So in that sense, the person still subjectively gained the same thing he spent, which means I've lost your audio. Internally, he received something eternally. That's it's treating. But from the outer perspective, other people see it. They don't see the inner situation of that person. So they cannot see that recompensation of the person. Then they can make up the make up the conclusion that the person sacrificed because he did not gain as much of a material thing. So that's a sacrifice. But from the person's uh, subjective perspective, he only made a trade. He only traded for something that other people cannot see in that sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you, you cut out for a few seconds, so I'm not sure I got all of it, but uh, oh. if, if I, uh, I, I think I got most of it, y your idea was that we, we can't just look at an action and know object objectively or from an outside perspective, um, it might seem like a sacrifice, but if we knew internally, uh, subjectively, what was going on in the person's minds, mm -hmm. Um, we might think if we knew that, that it was not a sacrifice. It was more like a trade. I would say if it's subjective, then it's never a sacrifice. It's always a trade because we cannot make, if, if it's a sacrifice, if it's not a trade, if we think we, we gave up something and did not receive anything, not even a sense of satisfaction, that is not even irrational, it's illogical.
and that person must be mad or crazy because he cannot even judge the situation. If he can judge the situation correctly and makes a rational choice, he must have treated, gave up something and received something that's either physical or mental, but that's still something that benefited himself. And that's a treat, that's not a sacrifice. Okay, are, are you saying that it's, first of all, are you saying it's impossible to, to give up something without getting anything even internal, uh, like satisfaction? Mm -hmm. uh, is, is that at least one of the claims that you're making here? or at least he cannot rationally make such a choice. Okay. So maybe it's possible for someone to give up something without getting as much or more in return, but although it's possible, it's not rational to do that. Mm -hmm. Maybe he made a mistake. Maybe he was confused. He was misled. But if he knows all the information and knows the consequence, he would not make it make such a decision then. Okay, well then now I'm wondering if you do think it's impossible, like if you if you think it's the only way to do this is to lack information. Like if someone had all the relevant information, they knew by giving up whatever, um, they would not be getting as much or more in return. It would be a net loss. Mm -hmm. that's what full information would tell them and so is it i guess if it's do you think it's impossible for someone to have all the information they need to decide whether it would be a net benefit or a net loss and still go through with it if it's and have it be a net loss to themselves <laughs> I think they will never do that. But we, because we cannot understand their subjective view, and therefore sometimes their the internal gain, what they can gain internally, can be super huge. It might will recompensate whatever physical loss they got, or they, so whatever physical loss they need to give up. So in that sense, they are still benefiting them. They are still making a trade. They, they did not give up something and uh, received something less in exchange. They still received more or at least equal in exchange. It's only that, that sense of satisfaction or that inter, internal feeling is playing a huge role in that sense. Okay. Um, hold on for just a second. I just need to get some water. I'll be right back. Thank you.
Okay. So, <clears throat> you, you think it's, um, I, I'm still not sure I, I have the view on, um, your view on whether it's possible. You think someone is always getting satisfaction when they give something up? Um, is that part of your view? Whenever someone gives something up, they are always getting satisfaction for doing that? I think, yeah, in that sense, yes. Satisfaction, a person must receive some level of satisfaction. And if that level of sex, if that level of satisfaction is so it's huge enough to replace the physical materials he received, then the person can be viewed objectively as sacrificing himself for something. But internally, he's only trading. I'm not sure we can. It can be both a sacrifice and not a sacrifice. So I think maybe what you're saying is objectively, it's a, something can be a sacrifice, but subjectively, it's it might not be a sacrifice. Just an aside, I'm not sure these are the yeah. best terms to use to get at this, the idea objectively and subjectively, yeah. but I'm kind of because, going along with it. Yeah, because this objection, this objective view is not in fact objective. It is only a view from other people. It's other people's view. It's not truly objective view. It's the subjectivity of other people. So. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it could, so is it just a mistaken view? Like people yes. who. Yes, I think so. Okay. So people looking from the outside at somebody's action might think that that person is acting in a, in a way that's resulting in a net loss mm -hmm. to that person. Mm -hmm. Whereas the person, they, but, and they would be mistaken because uh, at least in this example, uh, where you're saying that if we factor in how the satisfaction that the person gets, which maybe only that person knows about, mm -hmm. um, it's actually not, uh, a net loss to that person. It's a net gain. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, so there, I think the, um, the outsiders, they would just be mistaken. Mm -hmm. um, maybe reasonably mistaken. Maybe they have good evidence, mm -hmm. uh, but they're nonetheless mistaken. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly possible. At least I don't see off the top of my head why it would not be possible. People can make these kind of misjudgments. Uh, okay, so where does that take us? Um, I, I don't know how we, I don't remember how we got into that. I think we, maybe we were trying to get clear on what exactly a sacrifice is. Mm -hmm. And I was questioning whether that was the right term. And I said, well, we ought to have some term mm -hmm. to distinguish between these 
two kinds of cases. One where you're uh, getting more than you give up. Mm-hmm. We could call that a net gain. And one where you're um, giving up more than you're getting and call that a net loss. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it has to be intentional too. I think that's relevant. Um, because if I, let's say I, uh, I give up, I, I go to a restaurant and I, I give up uh, $20 for my meal. That's how much it cost me. Mm-hmm. And then it's a really bad meal. The, the service mm-hmm. is bad. The food is not cooked right. <laughs> Uh-huh. And I, at the end of the, the evening, I think ah, that was not worth twenty dollars. Um, that was only worth about ten dollars. Uh-huh. Um, so there is a case where you might say, I, "Well, I, I got, I gave up more than I got, so uh-huh. it was a net loss." But that wasn't my intention. My intention, uh-huh. I went in thinking that I would get more than $20 and maybe it was a risk I took and I wasn't sure, but I at least thought it was possible. And my hope was that I would get more than I gave up. So I think as long as that's your hope or your intention, um, that I think that's the key thing here. Sometimes we make mistakes poor judgments or our predictions Mm -hmm. turn out to be wrong, but I don't, so we end up, giving up more than we get um in some sense but i don't think i wouldn't call that uh i or i wouldn't put that in the same category as like uh someone who who just goes into the restaurant and gives twenty dollars and walks out and (laughs) uh and not even intending to get some internal satisfaction for helping out the restaurant or something but just yep maybe as a, a nihilistic uh, wasting of his resources or people who um, I heard of uh, you know, like burning hundred dollar bills, uh, you know, just lighting them on fire or, or um, taking expensive water, Pellegrino, and just like flushing it down the toilet, um, not even drinking it. I've heard of that happening. Um, you might think that's just a nihilistic destruction of value. There's no attempts. You might think they're getting some kind of sick satisfaction. So really, mm-hmm. um, they are benefiting still on that. But anyways, um, I think the intention is important. We don't want to just look at whether you you took a, a risk and the risk didn't go the way you wanted it to. So it ended up you lost more than you gained. Mm-hmm. I think that's importantly different from cases where you're not intending mm-hmm. to um, get more than you give up. Maybe it's impossible mm-hmm. uh, psychologically d- to carry through with that intention to deliberately uh, try to uh, give up more than you gain. But whether that's actually possible or not, I, I think it's important to distinguish that from cases where you're not intending. Mm-hmm. to give up uh, more than you gain. Okay. How about, Go ahead. How about a case where people intentionally give up, give up something and receive something exchanged that's smaller? 
in order to avoid further loss, like in your stock market, by selling the stock price lower than their than the price they originally bought from, to avoid having to sell it at a lower price, the person mm. is creating a net loss in order to prevent a greater net loss in the future. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a little wrinkle on this. Um, uh, right, so I think if someone, if someone sells lower than at the price they bought it, in order to avoid having to sell at an even lower price, because they think the stock is going to keep going down, mm -hmm. um, uh, I think that's still uh, imp importantly different from the case where these kind of nihilistic cases I was talking about, where maybe someone thinks the stock is going to go up mm. tomorrow, but they sell it today. <laughs> um, so. I guess what's key here is doing what's best for yourself, not necessarily, um, well, I guess we have to define the, the time range here. So it might be a, a net loss for you to sell your stock at a lower price than you bought it relative to a certain time frame. Mm. Um, but relative, like relative to, if the time frame is the time at which you bought the stock and then the time at which you sold the stock, it might seem like a net loss if you uh, sell it at a lower price than you bought. But if the time frame is larger, if you, if the time frame is, um, I guess, well, let's say it's your whole life, then. Uh, if you think the alternative at a given time is that either you take a net loss relative to this narrow time frame, or um, you sell it and end up net above where you would have counterfactually if you had held on to that stock even longer, mm -hmm. then it it might seem like a net gain, or at least like a a way of minimizing the loss. Mm -hmm. uh, so. I would still want to, it still seems like the person is doing what they think is in their best interest when they sell it at a loss relative to the narrow time frame. So I think you could still say that that action of selling it at a loss is egoistic if they think that overall that's going to be what's best for themselves. So Maximizing your gains and minimizing your losses, I think, can both be egoistic. It's, they're kind of uh, different angles on the same thing. Of they're, they're both ways of doing what's best for yourself. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it can be almost impossible for normal people to manage the greatest benefit for your person for yourself. Just like in the stock market, you never know if it's going to keep rise or going down. So which one should you choose as an egoist? 
should you sell it at the lower price than you bought? Or should you wait until it rises? Because you, because you have no idea if it's going to rise at the next day or it's going to become lower in the next day. Mm -hmm. I mean, as an egoist, what should you do? Well, I mean, if you're not a... Um professional stock trader you're in a you're in a different position than someone who is so as an egoist uh, if, if you're not a professional stock trader then maybe you're the best thing for you to do is just to hire somebody who is a professional mm. and who has a better idea of uh, whether it's going to go up or down and let that person delegate to that person that choice and that's that's the best, that's what you could do that's most in your interest. So sometimes when we, when we have lack of knowledge about some fields, we have to rely on experts. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, you could say the same thing about, um, ask the same sort of question about a health field. Mm -hmm. What should I do as an egoist? Should I follow a low carb diet or a high carb diet? Well, you might just not have the knowledge to make that decision. And uh, we can't be universal experts. There's just mm -hmm. too much to know about. So often what we have to do in order to pursue our best interest is to find other people who are specialists in some field and rely on them for knowledge. And that might take some work. I mean, we could, uh, do our homework, so to speak, and uh, look the person up on the internet, see if mm -hmm. there are good reviews of that person's work, see if it seems like they have a good reputation. Mm -hmm. And that, as opposed to just going with the very first person who pops up on Google mm. on some random website <clears throat> um, <laughs> who might give you very bad advice. Um, so that, so often egoism consists in pursuing our interests via some other person or by taking advantage of other people's expertise. And there's no straightforward answer to every question as to, you know, what should I do? Should I raise this, sell the stock or hold on to it? Mm -hmm. um, not every egoist is gonna know that answer. Um, instead, what, what all we can do as an egoist is resort to experts in certain cases. How about in a bigger range of a life scenario? Like when you face a decision of, if you should help this person, are you going to receive anything in exchange in helping this person? Like perhaps a inner satisfaction or perhaps he's going to pay you back? And sometimes we just don't know about that. And trying to use inner satisfaction seems not to fit with the, with the most egoistic perspective. Because if you think in an egoistic perspective, a sense of satisfaction from being altruistic is a paradox, right? Well, this... Uh... I think the, the definition of altruism might be relevant here. So 
if altruism means uh, sacrificing yourself for the sake of others, in other words, giving up more for others than you benefit from others, and doing that intentionally, then um, I guess it would it would be a paradox if you thought the satisfaction you you got was greater than whatever you gave up to help others. Um, sorry, I think I, it, it, I'm getting confused here. Um, you, you are suggesting there's, there's a paradox in being altruistic and then getting satisfaction from being altruistic. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Because I feel like if you are egoistic, then you should see that altruism is not quite in your favor, except for that sense for that sense of satisfaction, which recompensate for your interest. But then, what's the motive for to believe in altruism in the first place? Why do you even believe in that sense of satisfaction? If you never had that sense of satisfaction and you never commit anything altruistic, it should be the same, right? How is that if you do something altruistic, most, in most cases, the society, the majority will pay you back. They are going to pay you with, uh, uh, for your altruistic actions. Therefore, that sense of satisfaction was never the reason for you to commit something altruistic. Okay, so let me uh, let me just give give this example, and we can see where it goes. So, take Mother Teresa. She's often held up as an supreme example of someone who's altruistic um, but it's also sometimes said that she got satisfaction from what she did and she wouldn't have um well i don't know if it said that she wouldn't have done it without the satisfaction but it's it's often said that she did get satisfaction from doing what she did living um much of her life for helping the poor in india um, and because she got satisfaction from this, assuming she really did, it's often said that, well, it wasn't really altruistic. Um, I'm not sure that that follows though. I think if the satisfaction, let's just assume that she did get satisfaction from helping other people in India. Was that her motive? Was the satisfaction her motive? Was that her reason for doing it? that she got this satisfaction? Or was that just a byproduct of her action, which she would have done whether or not she got any satisfaction from it? So did she just do it? Was her main primary reason for doing what she did that she, she thought she had a re religious duty to help others? Um, and she would have gone through with that duty whether or not she got satisfaction? Or was her attitude rather, 
well, the only reason I'm doing this ultimately is because it gives me satisfaction. It, and if it did not give me that satisfaction, I would not do it. I think the twist here is that once she admits that she's only doing this for a sense of satisfaction, then at that moment, she, lose, she loses her sense of satisfaction. Hmm. So you think if, if she admits to herself the reason she's doing what she's doing is because it satisfies her, at that moment, she would no longer get satisfaction from it. Yes. Okay. Uh, I, I wonder if that's true universally. Like if, if that's your view only of someone like Mother Teresa or? Uh, that's my view on religion. That is, I think religious, as a non-religious person or partially religious person, I think religion itself has a strong re relation with satisfaction. You must feel satisfied in order to commit or follow a religion. You must agree with some part of those that can bring you satisfaction. But still, if you admit that you are gaining satisfaction, you are gaining satisfaction from it, and that's your only reason to become faithful, then it's basically, you are basically denying a lot of other things. For example, love and altruism, all of these concepts in those religions. And you, you, are, you are only, you, at that moment, you seem selfish to yourself. Once you admit, I'm only doing it for my own satisfaction, you are being selfish. And that's going to, you are going to feel guilty for it. And in that sense, it's just not, it's no longer going to be a satisfaction for you then. Because religion by its definition denies selfishness. It condemns selfishness. Right. So <clears throat> here we have a, another term that's, uh, selfish which hasn't come up much we've talked mostly in terms of egoism and altruism before but now you're bringing in selfish um and uh yeah i mean it might be good to talk about some so <clears throat> religion you've just said condemn selfishness and I mean, I think that's right. Although I'm not sure it's, it does so consistently. Okay. For instance, uh, you might think that it appeals to selfishness when it motivates people by heaven. So if you're told you should act in such and such way because uh, if you do, you'll get into heaven after you die. Mm -hmm. And if you don't act in this way, you'll go to hell and you will suffer eternal hellfire, um, Dante's Inferno. <laughs> it's not going to be pleasant. So it's in your own interest. It's good for you if you behave in this way during your life here on earth um so 
this actually came up in a in another episode number 12 um there was a little discussion there about does heaven make uh is that kind of a selfish motive that religion relies on in order to get people act in a certain way um they appeal to people's self-interest they, they you'll be better off yourself in the long run in the very long run including after you're dead mm -hmm. uh if you are selfless like if, during this life here on earth if you give away money to charity spend mm -hmm. your life helping the poor like mother Teresa, uh that will all come back to benefit you you'll reap the rewards mm -hmm. in heaven so uh you might think religion is only condemning selfishness in a short range kind of way like it condemns selfishness uh do if that just means doing things that are benefiting yourself mm -hmm. during this life but if you factor in the afterlife you know if you believe there is one then religion might actually not seem to be opposed to selfishness or self-interest. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I, I don't know that it's consistent. Um, I would imagine a priest to condemn someone who says, I only believe in God because I want to go to heaven, to be unfaithful. And I think according to religious doctrines, a person who believes in God only because he wants to go to heaven it's probably not going to be, it's probably not going to go heaven because he's not really accepting God. He's accepting, he's only doing it for his own benefits. <laughs> right. So there's a, there's a question of, you know, on what grounds does one have to be acting in order to, uh, what um genuinely be religious mm -hmm. uh so can you be said to really believe in god if your only reason for believing in his god is because you think uh you'll go to hell if you don't believe in god mm -hmm. was it pascal's wager something that's associated oh. with this you refer to the dice because i referring to the one that even if there is no God, there's no harm in not believing in God, uh, in believing in God. But if there is God and you don't believe in God, you are doomed. Therefore, you should believe in God. Yeah, something like that. Mm. Yeah. Professor Molyneux provided a very interesting like, process for it to make sense. Like, after you think you should believe in God, you just hang around, uh, hang around with a bunch of priests and religious people. Until you gradually also become religious. And at that moment, you are religious, not because you wanted to go to heaven, but because you are religious. And then you repent to God and say, Oh God, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have believed you at the first place only because I want to get, go to heaven. I felt that I was wrong and I repent to you. And at that moment, you will be able to go to heaven. Hmm. So if you, you confess your sins, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so there's, I mean, if you really get into the theology and um, 
that, that could complicate things here. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, if you, if all you have to, there's also the idea of predestination in some religions, Calvinism, mm -hmm. um, where it's, isn't it like determined at birth who, who are the elect or who, who are going to be saved and who's going to be damned and there's nothing you can do about it. So um, there, that's kind of a deterministic or fatalistic view uh, where it doesn't really make sense to say, well, you should act in such and such a way during this life because then that'll allow you to go to heaven in the afterlife and avoid hell. But no, that's all right. It's going to happen anyways. Um, no matter what you do, it's, choice has already been made. Um, I, I feel a predestinated person is going to say, well, I still need to do, I still do good things because that's predestined for me. I was predestined to commit good things. And that's a proof for me to go to heaven. Hmm. Uh... Yeah, so maybe it's it's evidence. If you find yourself doing good things, then you, you might think, well, that's evidence that that's where God intended me to go. Mm -hmm. um, it, another issue coming up here is uh, mm -hmm. God's foreknowledge. Like, if God is omniscient and He knows He knows your future, then that that might also make it seem like it's predetermined mm -hmm. uh, where you're going to end up. So is there really a sense to calling your actions good or bad if you're just doing them deterministically? If you had no choice in the matter, whether you murdered somebody or mm -hmm. did not murder somebody, um, do you really get credit or blame? Does it make sense to give anybody credit or blame for what they do? If it's, if God knew what we were going to do in advance, then did we really have a choice about it? It wasn't going to happen in any ways. And if it was going to happen anyways, then um, does it make sense to say the action was morally good or morally bad? Yeah, that's approaching to a moral nihilist perspective. Oh, a moral nihilist perspective. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, if you believe in determinism, the idea that everything is happens necessarily, there is no free will, then you might think there's no morality either. Morality presupposes free will on uh certain views uh, on my view um and it doesn't really make sense uh there are what's called compatibilist views who try to mm -hmm. make uh free free will and um or uh determinism and morality compatible or determinism and moral responsibility mm -hmm. compatible um, I don't think those views work, but th there are people who, who argue mm -hmm. for them. 
or that free will and determinism are compatible. Um, people argue for those, but I don't, I again don't think those arguments work. I mean, as a person, we feel free will. And you feel free will. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if the word is deterministic or not, as long as you feel free will, I guess you can say, I have free will. So the feeling of free will is sufficient to say we have it. Not in a very broad extent, but in order for us to still believe in morality, that's good enough. Hmm. Well, I, I, if it's just a, when you say if we feel it, if you, you mean that it might just be an illusion and we don't really have it, it feels like we've got free will, but we don't really have free will. Mm -hmm. I mean, if that's your view, <clears throat> then I don't think that is consistent with there being morality. I, I would think it, it just, I guess maybe I would be a moral nihilist then if I thought I, determinism were true and I had no free will, I would think, well, I guess there's no moral responsibility. <laughs> uh, I might have this illusory feeling, but uh, if I think of it as illusory, then part of me is going to think, well, I guess really um, what matters here is what's true, not what seems to be true or what I have an illusion to be true. Um, I think if I think really it's, it's false that I have free will, then I also think really it's false that there's, then morality makes any sense. Uh, morality kind of flies out the window without free will. So this is a part I'm very confused about because I personally, I, I think morality is just like a tool. But I still think morality plays well in our society and in our daily life. We should follow morality. We should have morality. But morality is only a tool. So is that a perspective of a moral nihilist? Or is it a moral realist? Hmm. Well, I, think, <clears throat> I think there's a way in which you can see morality as a tool and it doesn't mean you're a a moral nihilist i mean it might depend on how, how we're defining moral nihilist but like i i think of morality as a tool in the following way it's a tool to help me live so i think of the goal as my goal in life is to achieve happiness mm -hmm. and i see morality and here i'm influenced by ayn rand um mm she sees morality as a tool to help people live. It's a code of values to guide one's choices and actions mm -hmm. in life. I, I think she defines morality somewhere like that. Uh, so <clears throat> we don't automatically achieve our happiness. We, we, don't, we don't come with a, a manual uh, of how to do it. We have to figure out when we're born, um, there's no instructions. Uh, I mean, there's other people who hopefully they've learned some things and they can 
he passed that knowledge on to us, but mm -hmm. they had to learn it uh, somehow. Um, there's no pre-printed uh, guide that came with the human race that tells them how they should live, how they should exercise their free will mm -hmm. in order to live and achieve happiness. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a, if you are a deterministic organism, as you might think non-human animals are, uh, you might think dogs, cats, fish, birds, earthworms, flowers, trees, they all act in a way that's deterministic and they automatically follow these some program, they're genetically programmed mm -hmm. to act in certain ways. So they don't have a manual either, but they don't need one because their genetic code automatically uh, causes them to act in the best way possible to the him to them. Um, at least the best that evolution has uh, been able to um, allow them to act. Maybe if you know another billion years of evolution uh, passed on even more advanced species would evolve that can act in an even better way. But given the amount of evolution that has occurred to this point, the way uh, non-human organisms act, one might think, is as best as they can act, given their genetic material at this time. Whereas you might think humans are not like that, in that we have free will. We're not determined by our genetic code to act in a certain way, we have a choice. We can do A or we can do not A in a given set of circumstances and it's up to us. I mean, I think that's what free will would be if, if there is free will. Um, so and it, even if animals had some measure of free will, this would still be true of them. It's only insofar as they do have a choice to do A or not A, um, that's, I think then they would, they would need some guidance on how to make that choice. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, so human beings have to figure out how to live. They don't automatically know what choice A or non-A is going to be in their interest to go back to an earlier example, should I sell this stock now or not? Um, should I eat a low carb diet or not? A or non A? And I don't know. Uh, I, I've got to figure that out. And I, I might not be able to figure it out myself. Um, hopefully, someone else has figured it out and I can ask that person or Google it and find out. Um, so how, how did we get into all this, the, the, the topic of morality and whether it involves, whether it requires free will? It started with selfishness and then goes into religion and then goes about predestination. Uh -huh. And <laughs> that deterministic view, and if morality is real, and then later on, later on, 
yeah there was um that's good you're i think you hit a lot of the uh points i was thinking more approximately like there's something about um moral nihilism and uh let's see whether um morality and choices i forget exactly how we got into this but it was anyways maybe it'll come back to me but i did want to make the point that uh, oh oh it's a, the tool that was it oh yes is morality just a tool if so um or well just that you know is morality a tool and i i kind of think of it that way Mm -hmm. it's it's a tool to help us make choices in order to live our lives mm -hmm. so if <clears throat> if my goal is happiness which it is i don't automatically know how i'm going to achieve that goal i have to figure it out and mm -hmm. some of the things that i have to figure out are should i sell this stock now or not should i eat a low carb diet or not mm -hmm. and morality is not I, not concerned with those particular kinds of choices Mm -hmm. um <clears throat> at least from a certain perspective it's not concerned um i mean in a sense every choice is a moral choice i think if you think of morality as just um seeking for the greatest benefits for the individual yeah and in ch figuring out what choices will um benefits myself the most benefit myself the most most likely lead to my happiness mm -hmm. then every choice i make is is going to be i mean that's going to be relevant to my happiness mm -hmm. so should i go out for a walk today or should i not because maybe that's going to increase my chances of picking up the coronavirus <laughs> um if so is that a is that a moral choice well if morality is about achieving your happiness um you can think well yeah it is it is relevant to that because i'm not going to be happy if i pick up the coronavirus mm -hmm. so it's it's going to um help me to achieve my happiness if if i make the right choice about whether to go out for a walk or to not and stay indoors uh that's that's a moral choice if i ignore the effects if i just decide on a whim um without giving it any thoughts then i think that could be seen as immoral because i'm not really taking my happiness seriously if i don't give it any thought you know how is this action going to impact my happiness um but here can be a challenge so the happiness is has a right really vague definition though like how do you define happiness what brings you to the happiness let's imagine a very foolish child who doesn't like to go to school and he said to himself well if i got coronavirus then i don't have to go to school for a long time so maybe i should go to the walk but that's obviously immoral right like but the person is getting the happiness 
the child might die from it. So the child says, oh, I don't have to go to school. That's such a great happiness for me. Well, his definition of happiness is clearly different from ours. And <coughs> it might be wrong from our perspective. But he did receive his own happiness. Yet, it didn't seem too moral at that point. Well, I, it could be that the, the child is mistaken. So he might think that if he... Maybe he finds school really boring. Mm -hmm. And maybe rightfully so. Maybe his teachers are really boring. And... Um, he enjoys much more staying home and playing video games or reading books mm -hmm. or spending time with his friends. Um, and maybe he reasonably thinks he would be happier not going to school. Maybe he thinks school is just a waste of time. And maybe it basically is a waste of time if he has really bad teachers and Maybe they just are uh, filling him with propaganda. Um, maybe you know they they teach him that climate catastrophe is going to happen, and uh, maybe he hears from his parents that these claims about climate are very exaggerated, and uh he, the teachers are trying to brainwash him maybe that's true maybe it's not true but the point is he might have good reason to think that he would be happier if he doesn't go to school but i think you probably had in mind a, a different case where it's actually in his long-range best interest to go to school mm -hmm. he would be learning let's say he's he has good teachers it does take effort to learn and concentrate, <clears throat> um, but he will be better off in the long run if he puts forth that effort and spends that time at school. Now, if that's true and he just on a whim decides, well, I don't want to go to school, um, and maybe he, he pretends he's sick uh, in, in order to get out of it and then just spends the whole day uh, playing video games and uh, letting his mind go to mush. Um, then I think he would not be doing what makes him most happy uh, he might be doing what gives him a momentary uh, thrill or some immediate satisfaction, mm -hmm. but I don't think he would really be pursuing his long-run happiness. If he thought about, you know, what is going to really make me most happy in life? Is it getting the knowledge and skills mm -hmm. that I could get if I went to school? Or is it vegging out at home on my couch playing video games all day? If he really thought seriously about that question and he concluded, I would actually be better off in the long run by going to school. And yet he just, uh, he ignored that. 
he pushed that information out of his mind. He, um, he evaded that, mm -hmm. to use a term that Ayn Rand often uses. Then I don't, I think you could plausibly say he's not really pursuing his own happiness. How about ethics? Like addicts, their happiness is greater than any of us could imagine. Addicts, drug addicts. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's true. I mean, they. I, I've never taken drugs, but <laughs> <laughs> from what I hear, they they can get some momentary high. Mm -hmm. Um, but is that happiness and also does that give them self-esteem I think that's that's an important thing to have I, I don't think it would give them a sense of self-esteem because I think that comes from accomplishing something uh creating some kind of value, like if you invent the iPhone or... Well, I feel like this self-esteem is something, it's not something spontaneous in happiness. It is something educated into us by the society. It's being taught to us that we should reach to some self-esteem in order to seek for happiness. But is it really necessary? I can imagine a person without self-esteem and doesn't care about self-esteem to be happy. And a mistaken happiness can be happiness, right? Happiness is just how a person feels. And there is not, no really mistaken or not. Even if it's, it's being deceived on and having a false happiness, the reason for us to criticize that happiness to be false is because it's not the happiness we want. But... It's, it might not apply to the person. Mm. There is a, a sense in which I think you could say that the feeling is all that matters. So there, there's a famous thought experiment by Robert Nozick. Actually, this came up in a conversation with Professor Molyneux, the experience machine, mm -hmm. where you could uh, plug yourself into this machine sort of like the Matrix movie idea, and have whatever experiences you wanted. And so I guess if you wanted the feeling of happiness, you can have that in this machine, because I think it's part of the thought experiment that you can have whatever, whatever experiences you want. Now, normally in actual life, I think there are certain things you need to do, like have a productive career. Mm -hmm in order to achieve happiness. But in this thought experiment, that wouldn't be necessary. Um, you could get happiness some other way. <clears throat> um, and maybe that's all that matters. <clears throat> um, if, if happiness is the purpose of life, as, as Rand says, and as you might interpret Aristotle, mm -hmm. Um, as saying, although I think his is, well, let me leave aside Aristotle, but if you think happiness is the purpose of life and you think happiness is an emotion, 
mm -hmm. and or a feeling you might call it, and you can get that feeling if you can get that feeling in an abnormal way uh i don't i don't see a reason not to get that if that's really what we're after um so if you can get it in, ex, in an experience machine i guess fine i, I but I, I don't know that that really uh, carries much uh, importance, given that in the actual world, uh, we don't have this alternative way to get happiness. Um, and I might not even call it fake happiness, you use that term, if you're in the machine, because if if happiness just is an emotion um, and you can get that emotion, then why isn't that genuine happiness? Um, it seems like the, the cause of the happiness doesn't have to be part of the happiness. Mm -hmm. um, even though normally it does come with a certain cause and in the actual world, um, I think it has a certain cause so if happiness is your goal then i think there are certain things you need to do given the world as it is in order to achieve that goal and i i'm doubtful that what the drug drug addict experiences is actually happiness mm. um i think of happiness as a very deep feeling someone has uh deep positive feeling they have both about themselves and just the world as a whole uh and i i'm doubtful that's something you can get from drugs so i i don't doubt that you can get some kind of positive feeling from doing drugs uh, although I think it's probably also associated with a lot of negative feelings, withdrawal symptoms, and maybe mm -hmm. lack of self-esteem if, if you rely on in drugs entirely to have good feelings. If you think you're not, you can't feel good about yourself just based on your accomplishments, then I think that I wouldn't be surprised if you felt negatively about that. Um, even at either at the same time you're taking the drugs or maybe when the drugs wear off and you're in between your fixes um, I think you would probably feel pretty bad if you haven't accomplished anything in life mm. so I'm doubtful whereas happiness I think does require you it, it is a deep enduring feeling it's not just a momentary fix yet mm -hmm the way I think of it, it's a very um, um, enduring kind of feeling that you have, which is not to say there aren't any like surface level fluctuations, but basically you feel good about yourself and about the world. Um, so I, I, I include these two parts of it, yourself and the world, because mm -hmm. I think both matter. I mean, if you're, if you're a great person individually, but you, you're taken to a concentration camp, mm -hmm. 
it's it's <laughs> hard to be happy uh, in those circumstances. So I think the world has to be a certain way. You have to actually be achieving your values <clears throat> and not just be capable. You might have developed yourself into a very capable person. You developed this very good character that's capable of achieving values. Mm -hmm. But the reason it's good to have this character is because you can actually get the values. You're more likely to get the values. <laughs> so, if, so if you're in a, in a situation in the world where you, your capabilities are basically um, made irrelevant because mm -hmm. you're caught in a dictatorship or mm -hmm. uh, North Korea or, or Nazi Germany and you can't exercise this virtuous character that you have, then I think that's going to um, come at a big cost to your happiness. It's not going to be happy. Um, but if the world, you live in a free society, or at least a relatively free one, where you can actually achieve some real values in the world because of what you've done, so you have pride in yourself, um, then I think you will have this long-lasting deep-seated positive feeling which i'm calling happiness and i don't think that's something you can get from a drug fix so do you think this this type of happiness is spontaneous it's something we truly feel in ourselves or is this something we are educated that we are educated to feel happy in certain situations when receiving certain items or certain objects i think it's we'll use the term spontaneous i would say it's caused it just it doesn't happen just randomly um there are certain causes of it like achieving things in the world you you're at school you you work hard you you study and then you get a good grade mm -hmm. and um that will give you some positive feeling so you didn't just spontaneously happen to uh have this positive feeling when you got that good grade that 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 good feeling was caused by something and we can trace the source of that cause emotions have causes mm -hmm. um but i don't think it's uh it's just something society teaches us i think this is independent of society i think it's just part of human nature that's uh if you act in a certain way uh then and you hold certain ideas like it's 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 good to achieve happiness um well we could talk more about the ideas part of it but but i don't think it's just a social thing that we're taught i think it's ground happiness is grounded in human nature in the facts of reality because we are organisms of a certain way mm -hmm. we have to act in certain ways in order to survive mm. so in particular we have to use our minds as aristotle said we are the rational animal we survive by reason mm -hmm. by thinking <clears throat> as opposed to the animals who have instincts they can rely on. They have this built-in manual, so to speak, to go back to the <clears throat> earlier part of the discussion. Mm -hmm. 
they have a genetic code that can guide them. Whereas we have to figure out, you know, uh, how do I, how do I get my dinner tonight? I have to hunt. And so I need to figure out how to mm -hmm. catch the animal. Okay. Well, maybe I'll have to create some weapon like a spear or a, or a fishing net or something. We have to use our minds and figure these things out. Um, and then when we do figure it out and then we succeed at it, we actually catch the fish. Um, then that leads to happiness. I mean, when we're able to do this repeatedly, it's, like I was saying, happiness is this long enduring thing. So it's not just you get one concrete thing and all of a sudden you're happy. I mean, I think if you catch the fish, it does give you a rush. It gives you a positive feeling, that mm -hmm. one action. And then, but when you're able to repeatedly do this, when, when it's not a matter of accidents, when you develop the character um, that's required to live successfully, um, that's when I think you get this long range deep-seated feeling as opposed to just um, isolated victories mm -hmm. each one of which will give you a positive feeling um, but after you get enough of those I think you come to see yourself in general as a good person it wasn't just I did a good action on this one day and maybe this other day mm -hmm. but the rest of my life I've been doing terribly no if you mm -hmm if you're consistently doing good things, then you, you, uh, you can generalize about yourself and think I'm in general, I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm the kind of person who can do this, who can succeed at life. And I think that's when you get that long lasting, deep seated kind of happiness I was talking about. And then while you've got that long lasting happiness, you also have these uh, spikes every time you, achieve some new, you get the next fix, the next fish, um, you, you land your next job, you, whatever, you get an A in your class, those can be like, um, I guess they can heighten that basically good feeling that you normally have. Uh, but I think none of that is social. I think that's all it's not because of the way what we were taught. Um, it's just, although what we we're taught can influence, can influence um, all of this. Like if you're taught that happiness is a bad thing to worry about, like you're selfish to just worry about your happiness. It's life is not about you. It's about glorifying God. You know, this is a, message that you'll hear from religion mm -hmm. often um they say your your life is not about you and your your puny happiness you're so insignificant in the face of mm -hmm. god's creation what matters is glorifying god not your happiness <clears throat> that's individual and selfish so i mean if you hold an idea like that and then, and this is something that society in the sense of other people mm -hmm. um, can transmit to you. Uh, 
although not against your will, I, um, they can't just pour ideas into you. You have, I mean, if you just, you might passively absorb this in the sense that if you just go along with whatever people tell you and you don't think about it, mm-hmm. you just accept their word, take them on faith, then you open yourself up to real harm, I think. Because I think there are bad actors out there, people who do want to take advantage of innocent people, like maybe these priests that I was talking about early on who want to exploit other people, live off of them. Um, if, if you're not on the lookout for uh, these bad ideas, you could be influenced by them in a negative way. So uh, society can certainly have an effect, but in a way it requires your permission. People can't just like pour an idea into your head. Um, Go ahead. In order to permit something, you must have a basic knowledge that was good or bad. But if the the first thing they poured into our mind was what's good and what's bad, what's bad. Just like people telling you good grade is better and worse grade is worse. And catching the fish is good and not catching the fish is bad. That's when you begin to, you have no way to refuse these concepts. You have no way to refuse the permission for them to come into your mind. Hmm. Okay, so I, I'm not sure about that because uh, this is reminding me of another point that came up with Professor Molyneux, which was that our ideas of the good and the bad originate from our experiences of pleasure and pain. Mm-hmm. And that's built into us by nature and and this is i mean the ideas of good and bad apart from pleasure and pain mm-hmm. i i think are meaningless like if they don't ultimately can't be somehow reduced or traced back to these experiences of pleasure and pain i don't see how the the ideas of good and bad can get a grip on anyone that's these experiences are what ground our our whole notion of pleasure and pain and that doesn't come from other people that comes from just human nature that's how reality made us in my view uh, in Rand's view as I understand it so I don't think and that that might come into conflict with what people say what other people tell us they might tell us that um, catching a fish and eating it when you're hungry is bad, but that's going to come into conflict with our sense that uh, eating the fish when I'm hungry is good because when I eat the fish and I'm hungry, I get some pleasure. And when I don't eat the fish and I'm hungry, well, that could cause me pain. My stomach is up grumbling and I feel miserable. Uh, so there's going to be a clash or a conflict 
or some kind of contradiction, you might call it, between what I've learned from nature, mm -hmm. my ideas of good and bad based on pleasure and pain, and then what this person is telling me. How am I going to reconcile those two? Um, that's something which I guess it's an opportunity for thinking, but I don't think the person, I mean, someone can tell you it's, it's uh, bad to eat this fish when you're hungry and you have nothing else to eat, but can they really make you believe that? Is that consistent with all of your other experiences? How about altruism then? Altruism doesn't give you pain or pleasure. It gives you a sense of satisfaction that's educated into you. A child would not feel satisfied by doing altruistic things. Mm. And in that sense, like, I mean, we are talking about eating fish and these things, these are basic. These relate straightforward to our physical body and our physical field. But how about these mental things? these mental concepts like we should treat each other well i mean it can be deduced into something like if i treat other people well they will treat me well but when it comes to a moral a uh, level of morality people say you should do this because you should be a good person they are not teaching you they are not telling you that it's because by doing this you can benefit they tell you that by doing this you should do this. You should just do this. By doing this, you're a good person and you should be a good person. And mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it, it is more, maybe it's more challenging when you're dealing with more abstract kinds of things, not just the as you put it, the physical pleasure you get from eating a fish, that's more close to the sensory or perceptual kind of level, we might call it. When it's more abstract and conceptual, it's not as clear or obvious uh, what is good and what is not good. And it takes more work to figure that out. I, I think that's plausible. And in fact, I think... Uh, that's reflected in what we see around us. I mean, who's going to say it's bad to eat food? I mean, everybody eats food. Um, it's that's so basic and primitive, a and obviously good for us uh, that basically everyone goes along with it. Of course, there's good ways to eat, bad ways to eat, healthy ways and unhealthy. But just the simple idea of eating something. I mean, who argues out? Who who's arguing against that? Uh, fasting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there there are there are people who starve themselves to death. Maybe ascetics. I was reading the other day about Buddhists. I think it was Buddhists, um, or maybe some other uh, Indian philosophical school where they uh, standardly starve themselves to death. That's how they die. Um, so, but there, I mean, they're a minority, but it does show that um, even, even something as basic as food is not automatically uh, seen as a value or as a good thing 
it's it's influenced by the ideas that we hold if you think if you hold the idea that's it's it's good to avoid food mm -hmm. um then you won't eat food <clears throat> uh, i don't know why they some some of these indians hold it I, i'm uh, forgetting but anyways uh, i think it's it's more of a challenge mm -hmm. to when it comes to these more abstract conceptual things like the doctrine of altruism uh, to judge whether it's good for you or not at least when so many people are telling you it's good i mean if you're a if you're I guess a benevolent person yourself and you don't think you don't easily attribute evil nefarious motives to other people mm -hmm. and you hear so many people saying it's good to be altruistic then you might think oh well, maybe there's something to that mm. um, it, it would be it would be strange for so many people to be saying this without any good reason. So maybe they've got a good reason. And I guess, I mean, it, this kind of happens when, when people characterize altruism as just being nice or benevolent or kind, mm -hmm. because I think there is good reason <clears throat> uh, to do those things. And I think lots of people do do those things with good reason and that helps their life go better as I was discussing earlier. But then is that really altruism? Is that really uh, what's uh, self-sacrifice is about? Is that really what religion is about? Or is that kind of a benevolent interpretation or maybe misinterpretation of what religion actually advocates when they advocate altruism so this idea that it's um i mean a lot of people think that it's good to be altruistic given how they understand altruism mm -hmm which may not be consistent. They could have kind of a confused notion in their minds of altruism. Maybe they package together mm -hmm. the ideas of simply being kind and nice and benevolent with intentionally doing things that harm yourself, that result in a net loss. It, it, mm. it, that might all be kind of lumped in their mind into this, under this one concept, altruism. And, uh, the, the good parts of it, I mean, we have to separate out those two two aspects of it, break the mm -hmm. lump apart, mm -hmm. I think, to really get at the essentials. Um, and I think you can, you can get people to buy into altruism by presenting the good part of it. And then if you kind of trying to bring in the other part through the back door, <laughs> after you've gotten the, you, they <laughs> took the bait thinking, oh, mm -hmm. altruism just means kindness and benevolence. And then after they uh, hang around you for a while, you say, oh, it also means, you know, giving 
turning the other cheek and giving my money to charity and mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. He was all, he was altruistic when he uh, sacrificed himself on the cross and gave up his entire life. And mother Teresa, who spent her whole life in India, she was also altruistic. All right. Well, whoa, that's now it's starting to seem a little bit different than just mm -hmm. doing nice, kind little things for other people. It seems like maybe you're bringing something else in here. I mean, do, are all those things really the same, belong under the same concept? It seems like there's some radically different things being put together under this one concept, altruism. If Jesus was altruistic and Mother Teresa was altruistic, and I'm also altruistic when I hold the door open for someone for a few seconds and it gives me satisfaction. I mean, if, if all that is altruistic, then I, I don't think we can think very clearly Mm -hmm. about you know how we should evaluate altruism i mean maybe parts of it should be evaluated very differently than other parts of it mm. so i think something like that might be going on where um people are they have this confused jumbled notion of what altruism is mm -hmm. and they don't want to totally reject it because they sense it has some good elements, but they also don't want to totally accept it because that seems uh, maybe hostile or inimical, undermines their own life. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, I think they'll say, well, you can't go to extremes. This actually has happened many times when I've talked to people mm -hmm. <laughs> about, I'll ask them, well, do you think it's good to be selfless? That's the first question I'll ask. Mm. And initially I thought they would probably answer yes. It's good to be selfless. But surprisingly, to me at the time anyways, a lot of people said, well, not totally selfless. It's good to be selfish to an extent. You don't want to go to extremes. Mm. Um, and, and I, I mean, that makes sense if you, if you, if you think of that there's these very different things being packaged into this notion of selflessness, mm -hmm. just similarly to what I was just saying about altruism, if you think it's both selfless to hold the door for a few seconds and also to give your whole life away in the way that Mother Teresa did, and you put all both those things into the category of selfless, then you might say, all right, well, I'm okay with some of that, but not not yeah. all of that. But then at the same time as they say, well, it's good to have a balance between selfishness and selflessness, they also want to say, well, Mother Teresa and Jesus were very unbalanced. I mean, they're kind of at the extreme end, you might think, mm -hmm. of selflessness. They, hold, they regard them as moral ideals. But there's a, then there's a contradiction there. You can't both say that it's good to have a balance in the way that you know, most Westerners do between selfishness and selflessness, and also simultaneously say it's good to be like Mother Teresa and Jesus, and they're morally ideal. No, they're not. <laughs> they're bad. <laughs> if balance is good and they are mm -hmm. not balanced, then they're not good. So you have to pick. So I, I think, um, and I've presented this kind of 
conf contradiction to people and they a few times they've been kind of caught off guard by that and they're not sure what to say at that point they sense there's some kind of tension <clears throat> um i mean i haven't done this too many times but a few times when i've presented this to people that's been the reaction and i i think that's this is probably true of many people that they're thinking on on these moral issues is confused Mm -hmm. and they're they're not really aware of it exactly how it's confused but you can bring out the confusions as i've just tried to do here the contradictions i've tried to mm. show in their thinking um and maybe once they become aware of this they'll try to get rid of the contradiction mm. um, and adjust their thinking but it's it takes some work and it's not obvious, especially, you know, given everything that people hear all around them. And they're not, if they're not moral philosophers, or they're not, they're not devoting themselves uh, to spend a lot of time thinking about these kinds of things. They're busy mm -hmm. living their balanced life, <laughs> uh, pursuing whatever they're pursuing. Then I think a lot of people would just go on kind of in a confused sort of way, not living in a consistent way where maybe they could be much better off than they are um, and they're and they're doing okay they're not doing horribly they're not dying immediately but they're also not totally flourishing and living to their maximum potential mm -hmm. and achieving this deep enduring consistent kind of happiness that i was talking about before because they have these kind of internal conflicts mm -hmm. <clears throat> Let me, feel, let me pause there. Go ahead. I feel like it's us. It's going to ask for too much if we if we ask for the majority to become to live their full potential and live to their maximum. I'm not sure if this is moral, but it is. Uh, I remember it is. I remember reading it somewhere. It's. It's a it's an interpretation to Buddhist Buddhist words, you know Buddha Buddhists believe that there will be like many levels of hells that you can potentially go to if you commit different crimes, and people are it's it's similar to the Catholic hell or Christian hell, so it's said that for the for for the. Um, not clever ones. You scare them to make them obey certain laws and certain rules. For those clever ones, you just have to inspire them to follow certain rules. And for those super intelligent, wise ones, you don't even need to teach them. They will understand the rules by themselves. So perhaps this will apply as well that I know this sounds like it's it's holding many people as not clever, or even holding them as we need to scare them in order for them to follow certain rules. But it did appear like this in many cases, especially during the history, like in the past. Let me just. Uh... 
check something here. Okay. <clears throat> okay, so you're putting forth this idea that there, there are di basically there are different kinds of people, and if I if I understand you correctly, and some people need to be scared into doing uh, certain things. Be because they don't they just won't understand they're not clever enough to understand what they should be doing uh so you you have to bypass their reason in a way you can't convince them logically or with argument they should be acting in a certain way so you have to appeal to manipulate them through their emotions i do uh, feel this to be intrinsically moral it sounds very moral. Like you are scared somebody to follow certain rules. That doesn't sound like a nice way of doing things. But it does have some logic when you try to apply this rule, this standard in the past or even to our own life, apply to somebody. You feel like it fits there. So what's the conflict there? Like... Is it just telling the truth, or is it are we ignoring something? Wait, so you're you think there's uh, are you are you asking basically like is it okay to treat some people as just driven by their emotions and not logical, and we just they should just be manipulated? Uh, through their emotions rather than through reason and is it okay to do that or is there something wrong about thinking about or is there something wrong in thinking that some people are like this is that what you're asking i think yeah I'm, i think there is something wrong about it but it does a, it does apply so <laughs> It's like part of both of those two perspectives you suggested. Huh. Okay. Well, maybe there are some things I can say about that. And then you could, I mean, you can just uh, reply and tell me what you think and we can mm -hmm. go from there. So <clears throat> as for the view that there's like a, a basic difference in human nature in effect, two two different species of human. Uh, I don't I don't think that's right. I don't. Uh, I mean, there are people who have mental problems. Like if you have Down syndrome, mm -hmm. then your your intelligence is just um, in it's. Uh, by its nature, it's it's less than if you don't have Down syndrome. Um, so you're handicapped. You're mentally handicapped, basically. And I, I, I don't know that I would say those people are driven by their emotions as opposed to they just have limited reasoning capacities. Uh, but I think, I mean, those people, you do have to deal with them in a somewhat different way then you deal with uh say normal people <clears throat> um 
because they have these limited capacities and they're they're not i guess they're not as able not as not as able to take care of themselves they they rely on maybe you have to it's not like they grow up to be 18 and then they're sufficiently mature and they don't need any more they can basically fend for themselves with some of these cases of mental handicaps they require perpetual lifetime supervision in a way that um, most people don't now is the kind of uh, extra help or supervision they need does it consist in manipulating their emotions more I'm not sure about that. Maybe it just means explaining things in a, a different way, appealing to their reason in a different way, explaining things more times, maybe going slower, breaking it down into finer steps, um, which is easier for them to understand. So <clears throat> even in, in the case of someone who has Down syndrome, I'm, I'm not sure that the solution there is to no longer appeal to their reason and it's instead appeal to the emotion. It might just mean you have to do a lot more than you normally do in order to appeal to their reason. It takes more for them to understand. They don't pick it up as quickly, but they'll pick it up um, if you explain it enough, perhaps. I, I'm not very familiar with this condition, but but I don't... I don't think that there's, uh, at least it didn't strike me off the top of my head that there's a, a category of human beings that you can only make them act in a way that's good or good for themselves by appealing to their emotions. Oh, I think maybe it's too narrow to say only appeal to their emotions, but it's generally saying that most people won't act in a very long-sighted way. Like between having a meal today and having between gaining ten dollars, for example, today, or gaining thirty dollars tomorrow, they would ignore the fact that they will potentially get thirty dollars tomorrow and choose to get ten dollars today just because they can spend the ten dollars already very soon. Well, some people will i mean different people will make different choices in a case like that <clears throat> um but are you saying that um there are some people who by, by the way just uh, i was thinking towards the end of my last segment there um that sometimes it's said that women are more emotional than men and uh, also children came to mind. You might think children, you have to appeal more to their emotions than you do with an adult because they just haven't, they haven't developed their reasoning capacities much yet. Um, so you have to get to them in a different way. Uh, and I, I don't think, <laughs> I'm not of the view that women are uh, more emotional by nature. I mean, it might be a cultural thing. Um, 
maybe there are some cultures in which men are more outwardly emotional. Maybe, a, I don't know that of any examples, but maybe there are some. But I'm not sure that that's built into women and men by nature, that one is more emotional than the other. In any event, I think both are capable, certainly, of um, reasoning things through. Ayn Rand, who is a woman, is my favorite philosopher. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, she certainly had some serious rational capabilities, I think. Um, Okay, but getting back to your, your your point about so is was your idea that given a choice between ten dollars today and thirty dollars tomorrow, some people are incapable of holding out for the thirty dollars tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And does that show that they are driven by emotion rather than reason? I would not say driven by emotion rather than reasoning. It's that they are not they cannot fully reason it. And it's not their fault. Sometimes they just are not provided with adequate resources to foresee that there are $30 waiting for them in the future. And in fact, this, can, this is an analogy that can connect to your point, uh, your example, which is that people sometimes just won't live their life to their fullest. They won't live to their maximum. They might live to 70%, 60% of their maximum. Although they can potentially live 100%, but they won't. Yeah, I, I think it might just be a choice. The some people are uh, short-sighted, not necessarily, but they, by choice, they, they fail to think about what is in their long-term best self-interest, and th they cave in to momentary desires to get some short-run gain that leaves them worse off in the long run. <clears throat> Um, whereas other people, they exercise greater strength of will, willpower, as opposed to weakness of will, and they do they they make the choice that is in their best long-term self-interest and what's most conducive to their happiness. So uh, it's certainly possible to go either way, but I I think it's a, a matter of choice, free will rather than something that's just built in by nature. Or at least I don't, I don't know of evidence that suggests some people are capable, capable of um, being long range oh, I'm, or not. I'm, I'm not talking about genetic or natural things. I'm talking about the social side of it. Mm regarding to where they were born, who's their parents, what type of education they received, what type of environment they grew in. All these mm -hmm. things can have potentially influence their reasoning ability. By the way, do you feel, can you hear like noise from the background? 
Yeah, I hear some little scratching noise. I don't know if that's what you're talking about. But, um, what do you hear? Yeah, it's just that my roommate is moving around. and. Oh, I wouldn't have guessed. It didn't sound like a roommate. It just sounded like, mm-hmm. like someone was scratching a microphone or something. Oh, is it like, constant? Oh, no, it wasn't constant. It's like, I don't know if you can... I'm just scratching the AirPod. Uh, it didn't sound like a person. What I was, it was just a little static. Okay. Yep. Uh, it sounds fine to me. I can hear you well. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So you're you're bringing up a a social. You're saying maybe socially people can be influenced by these different sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Parents, their teachers, and uh, um, but. Yes, certainly there there are influences, but exactly what kind of influences? I mean, are these influences that can deprive you of your capacity to reason and think long range about things? Uh, I don't. I don't think so. Um, I would at least want to hear more evidence or argument that such a thing does occur. Um, if if you think it does, um, I mean the the presence of social status is already an evidence for this, isn't it? Evidence that people's uh, ability to think long range is influenced. What is it evidence of? Difference in difference in social status. Yeah, the difference in social social status is so, already a result of a competition between people and people who have long sighted, who are long sighted normally have a better ben- has a greater benefits comparing to short sighted people. So your your social status can can be a result of your, the way you think, I, is that the idea? So like if you think. Or even is that the, your social status decides or influence how you think. Okay, so that's going the other way. Instead of the thinking influencing the social status, the social status influences the thinking. It, it's like a cycle, I feel like. So. Re- you think in that social status, therefore you continue to stay in that social status and you cannot provide better education for your children. So your children will also remain in that social status. And they, therefore they think in that way. And it just keeps repeating itself. Mm. Okay, so there's like a self-reinforcing cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, that's the idea anyways. Is that idea true? I mean, I, I think there is, there is some, I don't want to rule out that there's a kind of reciprocal influence that all the influence only goes one way, that your thinking affects your social status, but your social status doesn't at all have any effect on your thinking 
I mean, maybe we need to be more concrete about this to figure out if that's true. Like, let's take an example of someone who's got a certain social status. I mean, so who do we want to use here? The presidents? Um, uh, a rich person? Are we talking about economic status? Uh, someone with a lot of prestige? Um, I mean, these things always come together, right? Uh, what things? Economy, not, uh, prestige, and even the academic level. I mean, they don't always correspond, but basically if you were academically educated better, you normally have a higher prestige. Higher prestige. Yeah, uh, I guess normally. Uh, so let's, I mean, we could just take uh, a professor then, someone who's very educated, mm -hmm. and let's say they have a high social status they're generally well regarded um okay so uh does that then influence their their thinking their own thinking i guess there's different kinds of claims we could be looking at here uh, there's the idea that once you have a certain social status that causes yourself to think in a certain way um, or it could be that now that you have this social status it causes you to teach others to think in a certain way i mean both it could be that both both are happening but let's um I'm just thinking about this professor example. I mean, professors disagree. That's basically what philosophers do mm -hmm. professionally. They spend so much of their time, um, you know, one person will publish an article mm -hmm. and then somebody else will publish an article that's arguing against the first article and then there's, they go back and forth. So, I mean, this is this evidence that's, uh, just because you've reached a certain social status, whatever social status is associated with being a professor, that you're not going to think in one way. I mean, because two professors who mm -hmm. both have the professorial social status are thinking in opposite ways. And mm -hmm. they, they fight it out in the journals. So... The, I mean, is that a counterexample to the idea that having a certain social status determines you to think in a certain way? Well, but you do fight rationally against each other, don't you? <laughs> Maybe it depends on who you ask. I mean, the uh, <laughs> if they're fighting each other, I mean, each side might think the other is being irrational. They might not put it that strongly. But mm. at least privately in their own minds, they might think, oh, this person, he's not really uh, taking my argument seriously. He's not, um, 
he's straw manning my my position he's taking me out of context just so he can stick with his original um position and save face and not be refuted <laughs> and look bad maybe the other guy is thinking the same thing in reverse oh it's, it, there's this pretense at being rational but really it's just emotions driving the whole exchange that's um, that's very different from my imagination to a professor and their discussion <laughs> I, i'm not saying it's all it is like it's just a a pretense <laughs> I, i i guess maybe it's maybe it is in some cases and not other cases i mean i'm mm -hmm. i'm certain there are genuine disagreements and mm -hmm. both sides think they have the better of the arguments and they just need to express themselves more clearly and then maybe they could persuade the other side and they they both sides think the other is honest um i suspect there are both kinds of attitudes i see yeah this is, this is getting far beyond our topic right <laughs> yeah we we've uh gone a ways away from egoism and uh mm -hmm. altruism in fact what i was trying to bring up there was i was thinking to propose like as the core of egoism morality perhaps can be like the best rule like No matter if you can see what's going to benefit yourself the most, being a nice guy and uh, behave in a very concrete moral conduct can always lead you to a better side comparing to not acting in a moral way. That's just, I was trying to propose that morality can be a potential tool, which is much easier to use than hiring somebody who is professional in deciding what's better for you in most cases. Mm. <clears throat> well, I don't think it has to be one or the other. I mean, I think no matter who you are, you're going to need professionals, experts, mm -hmm. because there's just so many aspects of life, uh, medicine, getting your car fixed, getting your computer fixed, um, what diet to eat, how to exercise. There's just too much for everybody to be an expert in. So uh, we all need to rely on experts if we're going to take advantage of living in a, mm -hmm. a society and not try to reinvent the wheel and figure everything out mm. for ourselves. And I think, but I don't, I don't think that means we're not using morality as a tool, if, if that's what you're suggesting. I guess um, we're still using morality. I mean, morality, I guess I would say, in a very basic way, on, a, on an egoistic view of morality, do what's best for yourself. That's good to do that. Okay. And then what more concretely does that mean? Well, mm -hmm. it means um in some cases it means uh talk to people who are experts in a certain field mm -hmm. to to find out what would be best for you <clears throat> nice. um 
so you're you're using morality as a tool in i guess what morality would say um uh well yeah so i guess if you held a a non egoistic morality that says don't do what's best for yourself rather uh sacrifice yourself for the good of others or for the good of god mm -hmm. um so maybe we want to call that an altruist morality because it's about others altair mm -hmm. um or a self-sacrificial morality if you held that view then maybe you would not consult the experts uh because if the experts are going to tell you what's good for you and you're not supposed to do what's good for you on the self-sacrificing morality, mm -hmm. then on that morality, you wouldn't consult the experts. Mm -hmm. So depending on what morality you hold, you're going to do very different things. Um, and I guess it's, maybe it's on the, on the egoist well maybe on i on both the egoistic and the altruistic view you could see morality as a tool mm -hmm. but the the goal which those tools are meant to help you accomplish are very different so on an egoistic morality the the goal of the tool is to benefit yourself mm -hmm on the self-sacrificing morality or the, the morality that holds say that your purpose is to glorify god mm -hmm. then the tool is gonna be geared towards that so <clears throat> um what the tool looks like is going to differ a lot depending on what the goal of the morality is so different different moralities have different virtues for instance in uh in christian morality you've got faith hope charity um at, mentioned as virtues i think often as a trinity <laughs> like that um so uh, i guess if if you're uh goal is to glorify god then um somehow faith hope and charity uh or, or if your goal is to help other people mm -hmm. so let's say god and or other people serving god and or other people is the goal if so then uh these these virtues of faith hope and charity are supposed to be means to that end your tools to help you accomplish that. But mm -hmm. if you're the goal of your morality is to achieve your own happiness, then maybe you the tool is going to be different set of virtues. It's going to be like rationality, productiveness, um, using your mind, creating values in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, 
achieving self-esteem, pride, maybe we'll call that pride, um, being the best person you can be. So um, I guess morality can be a tool, even though the goal can vary a lot, but then the tool is going to look different. And here the tool I'm saying is, the, the analogy is, um, or the, the virtues are what I'm using as analog being analogous to the tool. Mm -hmm. So different moralities prescribe different kinds of virtues. Um, in the Greek, if you go back to Greek culture, they famously had four virtues of wisdom, temperance, uh, justice, mm -hmm. and, uh, one more I'm I'm forgetting um, but I guess wisdom is kind of like rationality in a way being wise thinking about things mm -hmm. reasonably um, so you might see that as an egoistic so given there as I was saying before the Greeks had a relatively egoistic I think morality they were concerned about achieving happiness for themselves here on this earth eudaimonia for aristotle and given that goal uh then you're going to want a certain tool to achieve that goal um especially your reason your uh, rand says that uh reason is man's basic tool of survival she even uses that word tool mm -hmm. which um stresses the instrumental nature of uh, reason. It's, it's a means to an end. It's, it's not an end in itself. It's, it's a tool. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and that makes it more nihilist, right? More what? More nihilist. No, oh, more nihilist. Uh, why would it make it more nihilist? It's being treated as a means, not the end. So there's no intrinsic good, but only instrumental good within this field as an egoist. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm not sure that makes it nihilist. It might depend on how we define nihilist. Um, but this uh, intrinsic versus instrumental good distinction, um, I haven't thought much about that. I, and I've heard some arguments against that distinction by some followers of Rand's, and I haven't totally uh, thought through those arguments, so I'm not sure what to say about them. Mm -hmm. But I... I do think it's right to say that on Rand's view, there are no uh, intrinsic oughts in the sense of duties, like things we we have to do. Um, like she says, the only thing we must do is die. <laughs> uh, or actually, she quotes a a a woman who. I think she she refers to a negro woman 
who um, said, the only thing I've got to do is die when she was confronted by her, mm -hmm. I don't know if it was uh, some white person telling, telling her she's, she's got to do something or other. And she says, the only thing I've got to do is die. And um, Rand favorably mentioned that, that quote, there are no intrinsic oughts, like you ought to do this. Um, so in Rand's view, uh, which makes sense to me, life is what gives rise to the whole realm of oughts. So we are living organisms and life plus the choice to live. So if we choose to live, then we ought to do certain things. Mm -hmm. uh, so the things that we ought to do, we ought to do because they are instrumental toward achieving the goal of life. Um, and it doesn't really make sense to think that there are oughts outside of the context of life, as perhaps Immanuel Kant's thoughts. Um, he thought we had these categorical imperatives, mm -hmm. uh, which are things we have to do no matter what, uh, just as absolute um, out of context duties, not because they help us to achieve any ends. Uh, in I, on Rand's view, uh, as I understand it, there are no categorical imperatives. There are only hypothetical imperatives. If we want to achieve a certain ends, um, then we should do such and such. But that doesn't mean any end makes sense on her view. So it's not like uh, we could just have the end of, um, I don't know, uh, eating potato chips or um, <clears throat> killing earthworms. I mean, <laughs> that might be part of a, if those are good things to do, they're only good things to do because they help us to live our lives. Life, living our life is the only, ultimate end that makes sense mm. so so there survival. could be other ends but not ultimate ends i see so sub survival is the only root of everything uh yeah in a way you you could put it it's the root of all um the, the goal of survival is the the source of all other goals so if my goal is survival then I might have another goal, which is to uh, go to the grocery store, buy some food. Well, why do I want to do that? Well, because that's a means towards achieving my survival. But then why do people suicide then? And uh, how come some people choose to sacrifice themselves over some greater ideology they believe in? Uh, Good question. Um, I think it's because the goal is when it's when Rand says the goal is survival, she has a certain kind of survival in mind. 
as I also said before, she's, she regards happiness as the purpose of life. Um, so a happy survival, you might want to put it like that. Uh -huh. um, so it's a certain kind of survival. And there are reasons you might not want to phrase it that way um, as happy survival, because you might think, well, if you're surviving um, in the right way, that kind of has happiness built into it as a concomitant uh, of survival. Like if you're if you're not doing the right thing, you still exist in some sense, but you, there's something you're you're frustrating. Like if I guess if you're um, Let's say you take the drug addict. Um, is he surviving? Well, he exists in some kind of way, but you might think he's 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 destroying himself. Mm -hmm. He's acting in a self-destructive way, so he's on the path towards self-annihilation. Um, and it's it's kind of a, a correlate or it's a concomitant. Uh, of that path to not be happy. So part of the path, part of the survival path is a certain kind of emotion that goes along with it. Like if you're doing the things that promote your survival, uh, you're also doing the things that promote your happiness. So they're kind of uh, fellow travelers, survival and happiness. And if you're doing the things that frustrate your survival, mm -hmm. you're also doing the things that frustrate your happiness. Um, so misery and self-destruction uh, naturally go together. So <clears throat> I think you might want to resist calling it happy survival as the goal because that might imply that you can be doing all these things that make you unhappy and still surviving just fine. Um, like there's an unhappy kind of survival, but if, if the things that make you unhappy are generally the things that also cause you to self-destruct, then it seems like there, there's a tension between what leads to unhappiness and what leads to survival. So I think it's from that perspective that you might not want to qualify survival by saying the goal is happy survival. If you think that means there's some kind of unhappy survival. Um, and if you think that unhappy survival means you can simultaneously be promoting survival and promoting unhappiness, mm -hmm. those things pull in opposite directions. If you're promoting survival, you're also promoting happiness. And if you're, not promoting survival, you're also not promoting happiness. But you can potentially see no happiness in the future and you choose to die. And that should be like the opposite of happiness, which is hap opposite of suffering, which is happiness, right? Uh, so is this like the suicide case you were bringing up? Yeah, like you choose to kill yourself in pursuit because you just feel like if you keep living it's going to be suffering 
and you will be happier to not suffer. So you should cure yourself. So by dying, you are happy. Okay, this might be a little weird. Then how about self-sacrifice? You self, like those ones in the ancient who jump into the volcano as a sacrifice to God for peace, God's rage. They are proud of themselves. Maybe maybe they're not, but let's assume they are. And they are happy by sacrificing to God because they believe they will go into the God's realm, go to heaven or something. Or some sort by doing this. So that's opposite, right? Like it's saying happiness then is on the opposite side of survival. They don't go along in that way then. Yeah. Right. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, that, that's. That's a good point to raise. So someone who, or a suicide bomber, that would be another, I mean, there's different kinds of suicide. There's, um, so there's, I was thinking of a con, of, of someone in the concentration camp uh, might commit suicide because life is just so miserable and uh, they'd rather rather be dead than live like that. But then there's there's a different kind of suicide where, like the suicide bomber, uh, or the person who jumps into the volcano, maybe thinking that, well, that will please the gods, and then mm -hmm. I'll be rewarded with a nice afterlife, uh, which is also what the suicide bomber might think. Uh, I'll get seventy-two virgins in heaven. I think that's the uh, that's what I always hear um, uh. is the reward. <clears throat> For the uh, Islamic suicide bombers, they get virgins in heaven. So it's it's uh, I don't know if it should be called a sacrifice as as opposed to an investment. You're making some payments now, they're giving up something, their lives, their earthly lives, in order to get something greater. Uh, so it's a net gain. Um, taking into account what they get in the afterlife or what they believe they get in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. So is this a case, are these cases where happiness and survival come apart? Um, I'm not sure what to, I mean, how are they thinking of, or how should we be thinking of survival here? I mean, does survival just mean our earthly life or should it also include after the life? afterlife? I mean, mm, survival, I would, I would assume survival to be the existence of a consciousness, right? The existence of or maybe survival requires more. Survival requires certain sort of dignity with, with held by life. Uh, a certain sort of dignity that we, we have by... Yeah, withhold in life. Withhold? 
yeah, we have in life that works. Uh, survival is a certain sort of dignity we have in life. Uh-huh. Okay, that I, I don't understand that. It's only that I feel like I mean survive you cannot say some I'm not sure what's the word for those people who lost their consciousness or have a brain damage and oh. can never wake up again. Coma. But they are, yeah, they are in a lifelong coma, but they, they are still alive. But that's not called survival, right? Okay, you. Well, I, I, it's, um, it's just kind of tricky. I mean, maybe survival is used in different senses i think uh, maybe we can say we can ask for not a happy survival but a healthy survival healthy in both psycho psychological and physical means <clears throat> yeah that's uh well I'm just thinking that the, the health and survival also are concomitants, as I was saying about happiness and survival. I think they go together. Like the things that tend to make you healthy are also the things that tend to help you survive. Um, mm. But I guess when I say that, I'm, I'm assuming a certain definition of survive. And maybe it would be helpful to say what that definition is does that just mean uh stay in existence uh i'm not sure but um maybe we we could run with that we could try it on for size and see if it helps Ayn Rand does talk about the, the alternative of existence versus non-existence mm -hmm. at, as being what gives rise to um, values. So as, as living organisms, we face this constant alternative of existence or non-existence, non-existence being our death. Mm -hmm. So um right now i exist but if i if i just sit here forever then eventually and i don't eat any food then eventually i will die and my body will disintegrate and i will no longer exist so in order to keep myself in existence i have to do certain things like eat food and take medicine if I'm sick. And if I don't do those things, then I will eventually go out of existence. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen immediately, but um, it will happen. So it's <clears throat> uh, in order to, the, the project of staying alive is the project of staying in existence. Um, so maybe another way to put that is the project of surviving is the project of staying in existence.
So, uh, go ahead. You wanted to say something. Yeah. So it is a fear to nihilism then. That it's a what? It's, it's a fear to nihilism. It's a fear to nihilist afterlife that oh. us want to stay alive. Is that so? It's a fear to nihilists to to stay alive. It's a fear to a nihilist afterlife that keeps us alive. Oh, um, so the fear of becoming nothing mm -hmm. is what keeps us alive. Well, I mean, it, you could you could call that motivation by fear, but you you might also look at it from another perspective, motivation mm -hmm. by love, and say it's it's the desire to live that keeps us alive as opposed to the fear of not living. So you can look at it from a positive perspective. What keeps us alive is that we want to stay in existence, or you can look at it from a negative perspective. What keeps us alive is we don't want to become non-existent. Mm -hmm. um, now, <clears throat> is one of those perspectives more fundamental? Like, do I go go around in life? Do I think day to day? How can I keep myself from not disintegrating? Mm -hmm. um, how can I keep myself from becoming nothing? Or is it more, uh, how can I keep myself alive and enjoying life? Um, I think it's, it's more the, the latter. Like I, I think more in terms of, okay, what do I need to do to, to survive, to, to flourish, to be happy in life, uh, rather than the negative, what, what do I need to do in order to avoid death? Um, I, which is not to say I, I never think in terms of the negative. Maybe there are certain contexts where the threat of death is is very present like if you're on a lifeboat or um the coronavirus you know i i don't want to die and the coronavirus is likely to kill me uh, i don't know that that's true but assuming it is like well then since i don't want to die i better wash my hands um after i've been out in public um before i touch any food so there are certain cases where <clears throat> I think it's natural and normal and maybe good to to take on the negative perspective. This guy is looks like he's a axe murderer and he's coming after me and I don't want to die. Um, so I, I'm going to run away um, or, or I'm going to be injured. So I, I don't want that to happen. Um, but simultaneously, I do want to live. Um, but so, so I think depending on the context, it, it might be reasonable to take the negative or the positive perspective. So it seems like it's in those critical situations that we always think that we don't want to die. And it's in those average day life situations which we think we want to live. So when we are facing death, we don't want to die. And when we are not we don't expect us to die from this scenario Then we say we want to keep believe. But I might also argue that this is because 
human being normally cannot, generally cannot afford to survive with a burden of death. Like we cannot live with our mind thinking, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. It's, it's death, this word itself is too much of a burden for us to all constantly think about. Therefore, we tend to use the word survive when we logically think or when we are motivated. Uh, I think that there might be something to that. Like it's, you said there's, it's too much of a burden to think in terms of the negative. Uh, I don't know that I would put it quite like that, but it might seem, or at least often it might seem irrelevant or unmotivating to just avoid something. Okay, I've avoided this bad thing, but have I gotten anything good or am I just at zero, kind of? I've, I've removed this negative threat, but um, that doesn't necessarily mean life is worth living. So <clears throat> I don't think a good life counts as one in which you weren't killed <laughs> like by a, a murderer, like avoiding murder does not mean you live a good life. It, it might be a necessary condition um, of living a good life, but not a sufficient condition mm -hmm. to actually live a good life. You have to do something positive. You need to uh, achieve goals, achieve happiness, not just avoid pains um, and destruction. So I guess you need those values, those, those positive things in order uh, to make life worth living. If you're just a blank uh, zero, um, if you've achieved zero and you just have avoided the negatives, that's not really an inspiring um, mm. thing that would motivate one, that would motivate me anyways to, uh, to want to live. Mm -hmm. So I think it's it's really the positives that are are the fundamental that that's what makes life worth living. And avoiding the negatives is a means to achieving those positives. It's not an end in itself. It's not like once you've avoided the negatives, all right, task is done. I'm satisfied. <laughs> no, it's it's not like that. It's that's just a stage um, toward getting the positives. If you thought you could just avoid negatives but never achieve any positives, life worth wouldn't be worth living. But if you thought you could achieve the positives mm -hmm. and never have to face any negatives, then it would still be worth doing. Mm -hmm. um, there might be some kind of incoherence in thinking you could achieve positives without avoiding negatives but anyways i think the positives are really the fundamental motivator mm -hmm. uh, they're really what makes life worth living i see <laughs> where are we on time here we've been going on for three hours and 30 minutes wow <laughs> how are you feeling are you tired yeah 
to be honest, a little bit. And I never had such a long conversation. Keep, <laughs> keep thinking about these philosophical ideas.、Mm-hmm. I was thinking about introducing the love topic, like、okay. analyze love from an egoist perspective. But that's going to be like another one hour topic. <laughs> so. Okay. Well,、um, we could we could either do it now, or we could also just have another call, another day. Yeah, I I don't really have a strong preference right now. Do, do you have a preference? Yeah, it's like I have what I say to you tomorrow, <laughs> and tomorrow? I have what I have like, and I have the test on Tuesday. Have a video and to finish by Thursday, and I have a one thousand five hundred essay and to finish by Wednesday. So a little few tasks to finish. Okay, well then,、uh, I guess maybe we should do it after all that.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so you're I guess you're in final exams week now. Yep. So okay, well then let's let's end it here, and、uh, you can take care of all that. And、um, we'll talk again sometime after that.、Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. It's good talking to you. Yep, great talking to you too. Okay, bye. Bye, bye Mr. Norton.